Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Called Podcast. Tonight, one of the most important figures in the history of music. A man not only important in the punk realm, hardcore realm, but literally music in general. And a man that I think is long overdue to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Jello Biafra. Jello, how are things? They're good. Yeah, you pronounce my name Biafra instead of Biafra. That must mean you're Canadian. Yes, it does. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, that's okay. I mean, my friends all up in Canada all pronounce it that way. Yes, yeah. you haven't noticed from what Nardwar does to me from time to time. That is very um, true. <laughs> but but you've also been a bad Canadian in the sense that you. Fine, if you really want me in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but look at some of the other people who are in there too, and as, as, as versus who is not, and you'll understand it's not quite a priority on my least list, but at least the Stooges got in finally. That's important. But um, you know, I, I thought you'd want me for, in some kind of Cinema Hall of Fame because of my my illustrious career in acting in Canadian film. Hey, I would love for you to be anywhere near a Cinema Hall of Fame. And your work, Bruce McDonald has got some incredible performances out of you. But what was your time like with Bruce? Did, did, you, like, did you like working with him? Unfortunately, I only got to work with him one time. Yeah, but it was, it was such an amazing performance. Well, that's why I was really excited when he wanted me in Hardcore Logo as well. And I was supposed to play the mercurial music promoter type guy of the show this band is playing at some point in the end of the movie. And then at the last minute, suddenly my calls weren't getting returned and it was less than a week to go. Where's my plane ticket? I got to get up there. Got to get to the Commodore in Vancouver. And apparently, and I guess this is standard in uh, you know, upper echelon film industry. I guess they wrote my part out of the movie for budgetary reasons or whatever. And uh, nobody ever told me. And unfortunately, that's the last time I've ever heard of from Bruce McDonald because it was a great honor to work with him. He's not really known down here, but he obviously does good work and has interesting tastes and projects and had a very interesting way of trying to get the performance out of me that he did. I would say um, from my earlier acting training as a teenager, maybe he was more of a technique director than a method director. You know, you don't build your character from within, all Marlon Brando, Stanislavski, and then out it comes. And it can be a very spiritual experience when your body is at least part and mind or at least partly taken over by someone or taken over by someone of at least partly your own creation and stuff. So, um, you know, that can be really something. When, when that when that that happens, but um, the way he did it was um, he had close-ups on the customs man, and I even grew that damn cop mustache for the <laughs> role, and had to walk around looking like that in San Francisco for a month before I did the did the did the movie, and he kept focusing the camera closer and closer on me, and then the crew leaning further and further in as I was sitting on that desk. And I deliver the line, and if it wasn't quite what he wanted, um, because some of the things he had me saying were not something an American would say, maybe something a Canadian would say, but it was, you know, having a little bit of a tough time trying to get that line to work. Um, and it's a lot of the people seeing that movie, it's their favorite line where I'm telling, um, 
the uh, lead characters, well, one of them is Don McKellar, who's gone on to be quite a name director up there, too, from what I understand. More power to him. But yeah. uh, I, I'm looking at them, and, uh, and, and then McDonald and the camera just right up in my face. And I think he just kept letting it roll and was almost like, like a hypnotic Chris Welly and whatever thing go, going on, but not in my house. You know, the, the, you could have not in my house. And that turned out to be, I guess, such an eccentric line for even a Canadian customs person to say, you can do these crazy things like a coffin on the roof of your car, but not in my house. Uh, you know, that's the line people like out of that movie. And, and he just kind of coaxed it out of me partway by hypnosis. It was kind of hypnosis, what he was doing. You know, just kind of chanting, you know, I want you to say it this way. I want you to say it this way. <laughs> and slowly but surely steering me. Well, it was the other lines too, but especially that one, because that one was really alien to me, but at the same time, it turned out to be people's favorite lines. So uh, I thought he did a great job. Well, when you were up here, is that when you started noticing bands like DOA and SNFU, or were you noticing them pretty early on and they were like coming down to San Francisco and you were hanging out with them even before you were up here? Oh, much before, yeah. Um, I think the Avengers had gone up and played in Vancouver, one of the early and probably the most important of the early uh, first or second generation pre-Dead Kennedys, who was third generation uh, punk bands in San Francisco. They, they managed to get up there and came back, and um, I think they ran into DOA, and in short order, DOA came down and played in Blue Hay Gardens, and word got out earlier that day there was a really wild bunch of people from Vancouver who showed up, and they're playing tonight. And, yeah, we're hanging out on Polk Street, come down. And um, this is about the same time Dead Kennedys first debuted. So Joey and I traced it back. Joey Keithley, Joey Shithead from DOA, um, and uh, traced it back. And I think we actually kind of debuted almost the same week and met each other by gig two or three. I mean, it was the, the third uh, the third gig we ever played where they were still in town and came to the show. But anyway kind of a different character than old Joe. Um, hanging out <laughs> from a bar on Polk Street and, you know, suddenly, and he he had a few beers, so he didn't take a leak, so he just unzipped his pants and pissed on the sidewalk in front of everybody. <laughs> which was kind of what I guess people did, or at least he did at the time. And then later on that night, it's the show at Mabuhay Gardens, and they were put on a last minute opening for a band called the Rockabilly Rebels, who were normally fronted by OG rockabilly legend Ray Campy, but not that particular night. So it was their audience there. And out comes DOA, and things that come across immediately is they look scary as hell, almost like they've walked out of a biker gang or something. They were chained, they had worn out bell bottoms instead of peg pants with holes all over the place, leather, this, that, and the other. You know, that was Randy Rampage, and uh, Brad Kent was the other guitar player, double guitar lineup, and then a 15-year-old Chuck Biscuits was playing the drums, and immediately they were really powerful, really good musically. They had good songs, and in spite of all the craziness going on, it was obvious they could really play, too. But within one or two songs, I guess Joey's bladder came calling again, unzips, and he pissed on the audience, <laughs> which was mostly... 
Rockabilly Rebel fans who were sitting down at the tables and chairs and were backing up so fast they didn't even get out of their chairs. <laughs> and the tables backed up with them and stuff. And I got out of the way, too. It was like, oh, my fucking God. <laughs> and so from that point onward, DOA kind of had a reputation of the scariest, most badass band on the West Coast. And this bond for, uh, uh, between... Uh, yeah, I never would have predicted he'd hold public office, except... Really early on, I mean, he told me that his father worked, you know, he worked for a labor union for a living. And, uh, yeah, the next night, um, there he was at our show, and this, this scary, wild guy. And so, oh God, what do I say to this guy? Well, what are the cops like in Vancouver? And he was like, oh, well, one thing, they don't carry guns, and this law is different, and this law is that's like, that's impressive. It's not just anarchy, rah, 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 or whatever. This guy is kind of like me, where he has his feet and fingers in two pies at once. You know, a two-track thing, which uh, our British manager later told me I was very unusual in that regard, where I had, you know, the political views I do, but I also at the same time kept track of what was going on with the real actual uh, politics of people actually running things and i knew my shit so uh joe and i kind of bonded over that too and, and uh a little bit later the subhumans came down and you know the canadian subhumans with the sadly departed brian gobel on vocals cherry useless Jerry Anna, mike graham aka mike normal and dimwit was a drummer at the time and uh so there was just kind of this bond and i think Joe and the others took a similar kind of rap about dead Kennedys because we were pretty wild that night. <laughs> Will Shatter from Negative Trend, who was the one who tipped me to DOA and uh, and was later in Flipper. He got so wild they threw him out the door and somebody maybe him kicked in the glass door of the Mabuhe that night. Just another night in the life of Dirk Dirksen and his Mabuhe Gardens place, I guess. But it didn't stop him from bringing back DOA as a headliner as soon as he could, I might add. But uh, anyway, um, so there was always a San Francisco-Vancouver bond from pretty early on. Would it, and, it is amazing. Uh, it is point amazing. of sticks were the next ones that came down. or a little bit different thing, but, you know, got tied with them too. And SNFU came uh, several years later. We didn't run into them till I think, 1984. I'm not sure anybody did. Because um, I, I guess Sean Stern, who's originally Canadian, you know, from BYO and Youth Brigade and BYO Records, had picked them up, and there was an album coming out, and we were going to tour across Canada. And uh, so I asked, asked him to play with them, which was kind of a no-brainer for the promoters. And I was just blown away from the get-go, both by... The music, of course, and the uh, full-on and unique stage presence of uh, Shy Pig, who got more and more theatrical the three nights we played with them in Edmonton, where they were from. You know, there wasn't a San Francisco-Edmonton connection yet. I mean, that's what it's the largest city in North America that's an actual city until you get to Anchorage, Alaska. So the northernmost. Yeah. Anyway, that's what I meant. So we, we played with it. We played... Uh, Edmonton, Saskatoon, Regina with, uh, with them. And Shy got more, more visual and more theatrical every single night. And so following him and that band got tougher every single night. But 
sometimes, including several of the times we played with DOA, it just kind of lifts you to another level. With DOA, we'd either follow them and be really, really good. You know, unusually, the Dead Kennedys was kind of erratic. So uh, sometimes we were really great, you know, as wild and sane as any band in the world. Other nights we kind of weren't or even fell apart. But uh, um, and DOA would go either really well or really not well because we just got blown off the stage. But uh, long, long relationship there. Well, it is amazing how similar you and Joey are going through your political phases as well. Have you always admired that he got into office and have you kept up with what he is doing up in Vancouver? I haven't talked to him in a little while. I think I've talked to him since, uh, since he took office, but I haven't really had a long discussion about that with him yet. Because, of course, um, in order to get elected, both when he ran all those times as a Green and then later from NDP and then this time as part of a slate, and he finally got in, was um, that, uh, you know, he was definitely trying to um, reach out beyond his own little core community, such as it is these days. And, you know, he's a Burnaby native, and he goes door-to-door, and he does the whole thing and all you know because he really really wants to do this and um which also means some of his views and platform and probably even votes on that council would be probably a little more moderate than i would be but then i'm not the one who got elected am i you know the thing is once you're even on a council like that or a board or whatever you're still no longer representing only the people who voted for you. You've got to represent and listen to and be acquainted with everybody. Donald Trump doesn't think that's important, but uh, most other people do. You know, and that's why, unfortunately, even like the German Greens and some others have been pulled closer to the center because suddenly they have to deliver for more than just the people who first voted for them and stuff and get some things done that they can prove, look, you may not like me for everything, but I got this done for you. How about voting for me this time, reelecting me? And that lovely little song and dance. So, uh, you know, it might happen with me, too. I don't know. I rarely vote the other direction. I did vote on a uh, against a city ordinance they wanted to pass banning guns in San Francisco, even though I'd love to see the whole gun thing, the toothpaste put back in the tube so we have a murder rate down lower where everybody else's is in the world, except some certain wild third-world countries with gorilla problems and stuff. But... Uh, Anywho, um, but so, yeah, it's a great idea in theory, but this got passed once before. The law went all the way to the Supreme Court, and it got thrown out. You know, Second Amendment of the Constitution does not allow this. And here they were passing the same law again. And at a time when the city is more and more broke and would spend a million or two million on lawyers to take it to the Supreme Court again and lose again— I thought, I have to be a budget hawk here, and I'm voting no. And sure enough, it did pass again. And then the court immediately struck it down, but this time the city didn't keep appealing up through the rest of the court system. And so we still got people with guns in San Francisco. 
do you think that that issues like that and other bigger issues right now, if Biden were to get in, do you think that he is at least going to be better than Trump is at accepting and trying to get our side essentially to push him in a direction that's a little bit better? Or do you see anything changing at all over the next four years? It'll take a crowd the size of one of the larger Black Lives Matter protests, all wielding blowtorches and all sticking them up his ass at the same time to get him to move a couple inches from his conservative corporate Democrat self. You know, I've I've felt for years, never trust anybody who calls themselves a centrist. I mean, the so-called political center has moved so far to the right and so far into the realms of being bought off in corporate corruption since Nixon and especially since Reagan. You know, what is the center now? Even if you're stuck in a rut in the middle of the road, where is the middle of the road? I mean, in some ways, Obama's attempts to reform our horrible health care system were to the right of what Nixon was trying to do right before Watergate took him down. You know, that's how far to the right this so-called center has gone. You know, I think Stephen Harper has done some damage up there, too. I mean, Kretchen was far. She should have been in the conservative party. Mm-hmm. But they've gone so far to the right that then he had to get into the other party instead, but just still be really conservative and stuff. So, um, you know, I, I, I think it's going to take a really serious, you know, and I said that when Obama got in, too, because even though he was great in his hokey, changey packaging, I didn't vote for him. I saw his voting record in the Senate. And some of the things in his platform where he he was even admitting that he was a lot less progressive than people thought he was. And, um, you know, I did think he would have better leadership skills than he turned out to have. Great speechifier, terrible leader, became president too early. And he would have been better if he'd stayed in the Senate longer. I hate to agree with Hillary Clinton on stuff like that, but with that one, she was right. (laughs) And, um, you know, and what made his ego so huge, he thought he had to be president right then and there, and then accomplish so little and try to keep stake out these middle grounds, and he didn't have to. And, you know, he's not going to be remembered as a very transformational president. And they talk about Biden needing a Roosevelt moment. It's that bad and stuff. Well, it was that bad when Clinton got in. It was worse when Obama got in. He didn't even put the Wall Street crooks in jail. He didn't try a single war criminal from the George W. Bush years for war crimes. And Guantanamo Bay is still there, which is a war crime. Every minute, it's still in existence. So, uh, You know, and I said even back then with Obama, and it's probably still somewhere on the uh, alternative technical site, my open letter to him that I sent in on the advice of a higher-up campaign worker of his from headquarters who came out of Punk Voter four years before, Scott Goodstein, the one who found Shepard's Ferry's poster and got it to the Obama that then decided to go back in the trenches and not work in the White House. But anyway, how did I get this guy to talk to me? Obama seems so accessible and so cool, but of course, no. So then I just send it to this change.gov thing. And it turned out most people were sending in like two or three sentences that they could have written in first grade 
grade if they could actually read then, which is getting rarer in American schools. But uh, um, and, and deliberately, I might add. But um, I didn't know that, so I wrote a really long thing. Everything from the need for a high-speed train system to reforming this, reforming that. And I tried to, you know, put a little bit of my Joey Keithley in actual public office hat on, knowing that if anybody's going to actually read this seriously, it's going to be, uh, you know, some upper echelon, probably kind of corporate Democrat, but maybe a little bit idealistic, in his White House. So I had to communicate to them. And so, you know, of course, the stupid little Internet Angry bird brain chatter. Hey, Joe Wayne's all the day. He's too old. And stuff like the you know, just the usual dumb stuff. But uh, I haven't read it in a while. I don't think I, I don't think I, it would be worth sending it to Biden. Let's put it that way. But uh, the, the more you go down that list, I think you'll see in every single case I was right. Some of it now falls under the category of Green New Deal, and some of it falls under the category of Medicare for all, which are not such radical concepts now. I mean, of course, Biden is against Medicare for all, and, he, you know, and oh, it might be socialism. Somebody calling me a socialist. Yeah, I sure wish you were, dude. But, uh, um, and a lot of it is just the common sense stuff, including my own ideas for reforming violent police departments. Starting with, just and I, this has popped into my head when I ran for mayor of San Francisco in 79 as a prank and already was familiar with, you know, out-of-control, violent police in San Francisco because among their targets was punks. But, um, and especially Mabuhay Gardens because it wasn't controlled by Bill Graham, that monopolistic, he wasn't tied in with a mob, but he might as well have been. He was so mean and greedy and con such a control freak. And, uh, you know, people look at him as this peace and flowers, summer of love dude. And he was nothing but of the kind. He was just the nastiest, most aggro promoter who stomped out the other ones and then wanted a monopoly. And even the little punk club was too much for him. And Mayor Diane Frankenfeinstein, the wicked witch of San Francisco, who now is still in the United States Senate, she and Graham were buddies. So she was perfectly happy to send her police department out to attack any underground shows that weren't his. And um, I don't know where that discussion started. Oh, yes, police. What to do about the police? Um, simple. It's an elective office. Every four years, the cops must, a cop must run for re-election, voted on by the actual districts they patrol, which would also mean they'd have to live there, too. they got to live in the hood. And, you know, if they had to be that accountable to the community, a hell of a lot less people would have the crap beat out of them or get murdered. Well, can we expect you to write a new letter to Biden if he gets in? As I said in the middle of that that, that uh, rapid fire rant, I don't think there's any point. Oh, just no point. Well, he, 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 he does not give the impression of somebody who's much of a listener. I mean, he's kind of set in his ways, and um, you know, things should just be business as usual. And he was even still supporting this thing called the Hyde Amendment that was passed, I think, in the Reagan years, named after a legendary right-wing congressman named Henry Hyde, 
that forbid any federal Medicare and Medicaid money for poor people to be used for abortions. And that's still federal law. And Biden, you know, said not that long ago that he still supported the Hyde Amendment. He thought it was right. And he got so much pushback from them raining down on his head being a political animal, okay, I said I supported last week, but now I don't support it anymore. Whether he will go back to supporting it again once he gets in there, who knows? I mean, Hillary Clinton got all kinds of pressure to reverse his, her stance on how great she thought the Keystone XL pipeline was that she approved when she was Secretary of State and, you know, gave it this big pat on the head. But then when she realized she was in trouble that way with Bernie Sanders and whatever else, she changed her position. But what do you want to bet if she'd gotten in, she would have changed it back again the next day. I mean, Biden has also said, you know, he one thing Biden won't see the light on. He's starting to see the light. Maybe we ought to do something on climate collapse, even though he will be long expired by the time things really go down. But um, he's pro-fracking. He still hasn't woken up about that. So uh, and a lot of the western United States is federal land. So this is important. And nobody noticed that, but Biden is actually pro-fracking. It's possible that is one battle with Biden that progressives might be able to win if he got in. A lot of it would depend on who he made Secretary of the Interior, who's in charge of all the federal lands, including the national parks and everything else. Well, speaking of Bernie, do you think that it was a disservice that him and Elizabeth dropped out of the race as early as they did? I don't think that was such a great idea. I think, I mean, Bernie's logic that he was going to concentrate on fighting for what was actually in the party platform that they, everybody else was supposed to run on, he was very successful with that in 2016. And a lot of the dumb gobbledygook out of the mouth of the Hillary monster didn't get into the platform, and his better ideas did get in. And that's what everybody's supposed to run on, but of course not everybody does. Um, but, and, and that was his logic was, okay, I'm pulling out a little earlier and we're going to concentrate on controlling the platform committee. And I think Warren concurred in part because she was doing so poorly in the polls. She was out anyway, and she was either going to have to leave and endorse Bernie or she was going to have to leave period. And I think part of what happened with her, cause she was kind of running ahead of him for a long time. But then, low about a year, 11 months ago, maybe 10, our powers that be, who also control, of course, corporate McNews, decided they were scared of her. She wanted to break up the tech companies. We can't have that. Not even Bernie's talking about breaking up Facebook. <laughs> so here's what we're going to do about Elizabeth Warren. We're going to stop covering her completely. We're not even going to complain about her. We're going to put all our energy into complaining about Bernie Sanders, thus making him more and more popular with the voters who otherwise might go to Elizabeth Warren. So, yeah, they split the progressive vote, and unfortunately, Lizzie went down instead of Bernie, because I thought 
she was not only more electable with the public at large, once you got out of the Bernie bubble, people would be a lot more accepting of her. And number two, I just think her skill set and her demeanor and whatnot, she probably would be a better actual president of the two of them. Do you see Elizabeth as the face of the progressives going forward, or do you think that somebody else is going to take that position? I'm hoping there isn't one single face. I hope there's a bunch of them. I hope that this so-called squad of four feisty congresswomen grows to about 40 in this election. You know, I don't think it's going to go that high, you know, and, and both genders. I mean, we may get up, we may wind up with up to 20, though. And even that is progress, because at some point, if they're really going to get more stuff done and be more effective, especially if that horrific um, segregationist Mitch McConnell is still running the Senate, they're going to have to get a hipper, more energetic, less deal-maker-prone leader than Nancy Pelosi. I mean, she's 80 now, and she looks like she walked out of one of your movies and stuff. But, uh, <laughs> you know, and she's, she's kind of talking the good talk, but kind of not. And unfortunately, she quote-unquote represents me. I live in her district. I know her well and about her. She's an old-school, big-city machine politician, a deal-maker, not a leader, just like Biden, a deal-maker not a leader. Obama, deal maker, not a leader. Same with Clinton. Of course, uh, you know, the other side, you cross into gangsters and stuff too. But uh, anyway, um, I would love to see somebody in there who actually really wanted to uh, do as much with that position as some of the right-wing extremists like uh, Newt Gingrich in particular were able to Tom DeLay, who was never actually speaker because he was too corrupt and controversial. So they made him the whip, the one who's the third in charge, called the whip because they whip everybody into line to vote the same way that the party wants them to. But they put a nobody in, a speaker named Dennis Hastert, who's now in jail for molesting kids, I might add. You know, gotta love the family values mob. And um, he was a high school wrestling coach, and he raped the wrestlers, essentially. And somehow this didn't come out until after he'd retired from Congress, unfortunately. But Hastert stood there as a straw man while Tom DeLay ran amok. And it got so corrupt, people even bringing grocery sacks of cash to Congress people's offices and stuff right in front of the media. You know, hey, stop us and stuff. So, uh, you know, I'm talking about weird names. You know, they had Hastert the speaker, but imagine naming the next guy next in line, the Republican, the, the next in line, a majority leader in the House, and not telling Tipper Gore what it was. He went by the name of Dick Army. His last name really, his name really was Richard Army, but he went by Dick, so he was a Dick Army. <laughs> and then right below that was Congressman DeLay, who was the one who was actually delaying everything and screwing it up. <laughs> it's just... I mean, it, it, it's up there with Ross Perot, that wacky billionaire when he ran for president mm-hmm. in 92 and got over 15% of the vote, thus costing Daddy Bush a second term. And Michael Moore even said, if that many people in this country vote for somebody they know is insane, what does that say about how enchanted voters are with the Republican and the Democratic Party? 
And that still holds. Moore is already predicting Trump is going to win again, too, and he predicted correctly the last time, you know, because the Democrats are being too mealy-mouthed and corporate, and they've got a turkey like Biden at the head of the ticket. And let's not forget all the gerrymandered voting districts and Trump bitch and moans about vote fraud, but the real vote fraud is the re- and the real rigging of elections or how we got not one but two terms of George W. Bush, who never should have been president at all, and the same with, uh, you know, not only uh, gerrymandering, but there was a program called, uh, a computer thing called the Interstate Crosscheck Program that 29 states opted into, and then there was one big database run by a right-wing extremist out of Kansas named Chris Kobach, same guy who wrote the Show Me Your Papers law for Arizona to stop people in their cars for driving while brown. That one didn't even make it past a lower court system. But anyway, 29,000, 29 states, all those millions of voters, and he had a computer that would flag matching names, claiming they went through middle names and social security numbers too, but they didn't. So if your last name was Washington, with 75% of Washington's African Americans, let alone somebody like Jose Gonzalez, None of you voted. You may think you did, but you didn't. And that's how Trump walked away with North Carolina, with Michigan, with Wisconsin, with Pennsylvania, with Florida, which were all cross-check states. And the guy who exposed this, the journalist Greg Palast, who does work for the BBC sometimes and uh, wrote that book on how W stole the 2000 election called The Best Democracy Money Can Buy and then made a movie at the same title exposing cross-check before the 2016 election. And Ice-T and Richard Bells are even playing their law and order characters in it, showing how illegal the whole thing was. And um, But that's what really did it. And it was so blatant. You know, when I noticed afterwards, okay, this is why we got the election rigged again. Where is Bernie now? Where is Elizabeth Warren now? None of them are talking about cross-check. They're all like claiming, oh, yeah, he was elected, blah, blah, blah. He just won the Electoral College. No, it was much more stolen at a much more blatant rate. And it also meant all these Tea Party crackpots who were expected to get voted out of the Senate that same year from states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Ohio, North Carolina, Florida, you name it, they all got back in. Just in time to allow the guy who describes himself as the Grim Reaper, Mitch McConnell, to uh, still have his majority so they could put Neil Gorsuch and that rapist Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court, which brings the total to four of the number of Supreme Court justices who were put there by presidents who stole elections and thus should not be on the Supreme Court at all. Chief Justice John Roberts and Samuel Alito, both appointed in Bush's second term, where he stole the election from John Kerry, who, just like Gore, was too spineless to go after the monkeying that Palace exposed and get their office back. So uh, the Supreme Court is that illegitimate now, as well as everything else. I guess this kind of brings me to a point that I've been asking a lot of my guests. Why do you think that the mainstream musical artists have not really garnered this rage? Because we're living in one of the, like, under one of the most divisive presidents of all time. If, well, I think he is the most divisive president of all time. But 
Where did that rage? I do not. I lived. I lived through Nixon. Trump takes a lot from Nixon and George Wallace. Nixon was more divisive because there were even more demonstrations. And yes, organized right wingers with axe handles going after protesters after a while and stuff like that. But it wasn't just police murders and an illegitimate president who stole elections. Nixon had the power to draft people, send them to Vietnam, and they were dying. And Vietnamese people were dying. And veterans were coming home addicted to heroin, you know, obtained by running it through, you know, guess who was running that and everything. But, and of course, Nick, Nixon was totally anti-civil rights. People say, oh, he was a great environmentalist. Now, he was an environmentalist at all. He just held his finger to the wind in 1972. Oh, what's going to get me another term? Oh, there's all this stuff about Earth Day. They want an environmental protection agency, this, that, and the other. I'll surprise them and sign the bill instead of vetoing it and thus take that issue away from whoever my Democratic opponent is. You know, it was pure political calculation on that one. Nixon hated animals at least as much as he hated people. But uh, he was happy to be looked at as an environmentalist, and that would get him back in. So, um, no, he was, uh, I mean, even in grade school, we know who was for and who was against the war, and it sometimes got pretty testy. And, And plus, then, of course, you know, slowly but surely the onion peeled, and people had not experienced the president being an actual active crook before. And the country was shocked, and the country was divided. And imagine my heartbreak that, you know, if we finally get the war over, we finally get Nixon out of town on a rail. And then even five, let alone 10 years later, you know, when the Reagan regime is in and everything else, that um, either party you look at any level of government, it's one big army of Richard Nixon's. I, I kind of feel like when you guys started Dead Kennedys and your counterparts at that time, you were... It seemed like it was a collective whole as artists were in a rage. Do you think that young people are in this still rage now with this president? Or do you think that they're maybe not doing enough? Or do you see that the young people are starting to stand up now? Um, Well, people stand up in different ways because it is the digital age. And that means there's some new things, there's some things that are good. And then there's some things that are a lot worse. Not only the, the sheer amount of lying that goes on on there, and it's going to get worse now that Mark Zuckerberg of Book has basically just come right out and admitted he's part of the far right, and that's where his sympathies lie, and he's going to let those people run amok and go to town because he's backing Trump. And uh, and he's going to let Facebook do whatever. They're not even going to need Putin and whatnot. Crosscheck actually collapsed. But now the, 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 the gerrymandering laws, you know, to keep black people and young people and old people from voting in so many states, you know, including northern ones like Michigan, Ohio, and especially Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, um, that uh, they don't even need cross-check now. It's gotten so out of hand because a large part of the Voting Rights Act that Martin Luther King and John Lewis and everybody else fought so hard at risk of their lives to get passed back in 64 and 65, um, 
the Supreme, the John Roberts Supreme Court drew a key part of it out. And a lot of these southern states put all these wild new Jim Crow laws in the very next day. You know, if you think these states I'm talking about are bad, try voting in Alabama or Mississippi now, or Louisiana. It's back to George Wallace. It's back to Lester Maddox in Georgia. I think the current Governor Brian Kemp is actually even worse in that regard. And um, so uh, basically, uh, and, and the Roberts Court is the ones who did that. And of course, Roberts and Alito shouldn't even be on the Supreme Court. So my long memory sometimes, even my stomach is starting to ache as I talk about this and stuff. It's gotten to that point. But young people, you know, they came out of the woodwork, even for John Kerry, as empty a husk as he was running for against W when W wanted a second term and stuff. They were all in and active for him because they hated W so much and hated that Iraq war and everything else so much. You know, it was more anti-W than pro-Kerry, but... There weren't a lot of young people in proportion in 2000 for Gore. You know, he'd written his Earth in the Balance book and had his one issue was actually good on, but otherwise, just total corporate stooge and everything, claiming credit for Clinton putting NAFTA through and that he alone and the Democrats in the Senate supported the Contras and supported wrecking welfare like Newt Gingrich. Anyway, he was so bad. And um, young people didn't come out for him. But another major reason that young people didn't come out with for him and they just couldn't inspire them no matter what he did was his wife. I think Tipper Gore had far more to do with costing Gore the 2000 election than Ralph Nader or us Greens could ever hope to have done. She was the reason young people didn't come out for Gore. That, that little sticker they, on all those albums definitely fucked Yeah, but that wasn't family. a little sticker. It was a multi-year, very public, and very openly bigoted hate campaign. Her main partner in the Parents Music Resource Center, and I'm still trying to get to the bottom of whether Jill Biden was in that organization as well, because I have a vague memory, of memory back in the day of reading that she was, but um, I can't prove it right now. But anyway, but what another roommate of mine who later went on to edit Macworld did dig up even before the cops raided our place and went straight for her files on the PMRC as well as looking for what they called harmful matter to prosecute me over the H.R. Giger poster and stuff in Dead Kennedy's Frankenchrist album. But it wasn't hard to find that Tipper's organization was acting as a front for far right wing and extreme fundamentalist Christian groups. And the tipper was actually one of them. Her main partner was Susan Baker, who was the wife of Daddy Bush's Secretary of State, that gangster James Baker, who, uh, you know, was a real, real viper in that role. And even beyond, he helped fix Florida for little Bush later on so he could steal that election and things. And then he and Daddy Bush would still be jetting back and forth to Saudi Arabia to cut more business deals and stuff, where they usually stayed in the compound of a family named Bin Laden, by the way. 
But, uh, yeah, the black sheep of that family, we all know. But there's, then there's the rest of them. But anyway, um, so uh, Susan Baker was an arch-fundamentalist Christian. You go over to her house, she'll take in the living room, everybody's got to kneel and pray. And she was on the board of directors of one of the leading Christianist hate groups in the United States called Focus on the Family run by a guy named James Dobson, who most people think is a preacher, but he's actually a psychologist, just a very greedy one and a very bigoted one. And that would explain why the Washington Wise original proposal that they presented at a rigged Senate hearing chaired by Al Gore and, uh, you know, it was the Labor and Commerce Committee. They weren't supposed to be looking into music and stuff. But Tipper and Susan read their statement with it. Labels should, quote, reassess the contracts of artists who are making this evil music and that there should be a detailed rating system flagging, if not banning, any release that talks about devil worship, explicit sex, drugs, homosexuality or suicide and even Ozzy's suicide solution she went on and on about it was an anti-suicide song he couldn't say that anymore either if this went through I kept trying to tell people who just livid with the Green Party that Gore wasn't president and W was starting in uh, 2001 um, I had to point out look if you got the other one in, you'd have a rabid homophobe as first lady. She just doesn't tell people that right now. And ultimately, they settled directly with private enterprise, which would be the major labels, who were willing to play ball with Senator Gore because he represented Tennessee. You know, Nashville, country music, behemoths and everything. And Gore was the sponsor of a bill that thankfully never got through. This is how corrupt he was to impose a federal tax on blank cassettes. Because the majors were claiming every last little blank cassette was being used to copy their albums. And this was costing them so much sales, which they could never prove, and stuff like that. You know, they wanted the government to collect a tax off of everybody just to benefit one part of private enterprise who's going to pocket the money themselves rather than give any money to the artists. Kind of like all the file-sharing suits later. They kept all the money. They didn't pay the artists anything. And Gore was their front man. Even when on record, when he's talking about evil music and what a great thing his wife was doing, it's just so amazing to me, with as bad as rock music is right now, that there's none of this going on in country music. Right. Oh, yeah. I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. You know, okay, change the instruments behind that. Get a Motley Crue voice in there. I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. Tipper Gore wants you washed out with soap. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and, and, you know, I, I, even before... I wound up becoming the test case and the pigeon for those people, that Frankenchrist prosecution. Um, I already was pretty well boned up about how 
dark this thing really was. And it was also the reason that no major labor artist, label artists were coming, showing up in Congress saying, you've got to let me talk, too. These people are lying about all this, and they're a front for fundamentalist Christians, and that every single expert witness that Tipper and Susan called turned out to be a fundamentalist preacher and stuff. Every single one. No scientists, no sociologists, no doctors, no nothing. And, and But where was Bruce Springsteen? Where was Bob Dylan? Where was Prince, who was one of their main targets? Nothing. I'll bet if John Lennon had lived, he would have shown up. But finally, Frank Zappa defied the major labels and testified. And then Dee Snyder testified in Twisted Sister. And then, of all people, because he just objected to what was going on and had a long memory of how they got rock and roll and black people off the air in the 50s for doing the same stuff. John Denver testified against Tipper Gore and Susan Baker in the PMRC, and shortly thereafter was dropped by RCA after selling hundreds of millions of records for them. Zappa was quasi-independent at that point, so they couldn't do that to him, and Twisted Sister was too big at that point, although not for much longer. And um, so uh, that, that if we get back to why aren't more people fighting, I mean, people are, but it's in the kind of music I make and the kind of music that gets ghettoized as gangster rap or whatever. We're talking about this stuff. And then Ice-T, of course, also has his rock band. I guess you've got to call a metal band now. You know, all the punk from the first album kind of went away. And he's <laughs> gone a metal direction with it, but still, like, you know, a really, really important band just because who is in it and what is being said by that band and what audience it's aimed at and whatnot. The last Body Count album has a song on it called No Lives Matter. It's a, and it's a fucking my, amazing Oh, song. my God. And I, oh, my God, Ice, this is a little going a little too far even for you, isn't it? <laughs> then I heard the song, I read the lyrics, and he's like, yeah, he's right. But these rogue police officers and a lot of the government, no lives matter. Look at the entire Trump regime all the way up and down. No lives matter. And now that song's starting to get attention because of the old things that have been going on, too. That uh, that wicked, bad cop killer song, Ice-T, who's been playing a cop on TV all these years. Um, uh, you know, he's all about the hustle, and he's awfully good at it. But uh, body count, he doesn't hold back, and it doesn't seem to ever threaten his job on Law & Order. But... You know, lots of the Body Count albums, what he's saying. I'm not sure he's made a hip-hop album since six. But um, hey, he did a hip-hop tour a while back, and Public Enemy was on it, too. But uh, anyway, um, so No Lives Matter is a song worth checking out, and Body Count is worth keeping up with, although I don't know how much time he's able to put into it because they, they tour, but when was the last time they ever came here? The only time I saw them was at the Guarbecue Festival that Guar throws every year outside of Richmond, Virginia, and they had them on the bill there, and that was the only time I've seen those guys in years. player who calls himself Vincent Price, um, he keeps me up to date on what they're up to.
Well, you're, um, you're like the lawsuits and everything that you were dealing with with the PMRC. Do you think that that that, that was an arrest? That was a criminal case, dude. That wasn't a lawsuit. I was facing up to a year in jail and a, something like what was it, fifteen thousand or ten, maybe two thousand dollar fine. Weird law called distribution of harmful matter that they had never tested in court. I may still be. Well, there are four other people charged as well in different parts of the distribution chain because, including an ex-employee of the Alternative Tentacles Office, because they wanted to see which part of the chain they could actually convict and then go after bigger targets and hopefully go nail Larry Flint and nail Judas Priest and Prince or whoever. And um, thankfully it stopped with me as soon as I realized that my legal guy had found out I was actually charged after that raid was because the L.A. city DA called a press conference and trumpeted it to the world that they were doing this. First on the block to sup tippers, whatever. You know, it ain't grabbing tipper by the pussy. Tippers grabbed us because this was the agenda along with Reagan's guy, Ed Meese, that we want to be part of. And we're Democrats. And um, so then the legal guy says, no, no, you don't understand. You don't just go get your wrist slapped and leave. CBS is calling me. CNN is calling me. And on down the line. Then I thought, oh, shit, I'm Tipper's fucking pigeon. You want war? You have war. Because I know a lot about you. And all of a sudden, people who would never admit I existed otherwise... Suddenly, we're giving me airtime and print time to showcase how Tipper was connected with the religious right and that the PMRC was a front for the same kind of bigots who created the payola scandal and used that to get people like Chuck Berry and Little Richard and all the rest thrown off the air for racial reasons. So would you say that this was incredibly similar to the HUAC trials that happened decades earlier then? Um, not as much as the hate campaign that went after rock and roll. And for many years after that, all you got for alleged rock and roll was Pat Boone and Bobby Rydell and stuff. And essentially till Beatlemania, you know, blew up that fence. And then, you know, it was a free for all all over again. You'd, you'd get James Brown on white people radio station, you'd get Motown, you could get Ray Charles and everything else. You could get it all back again. It was the the thing with HUAC was more politically motivated. I I was never accused of that thing of being a spy for the Soviet Union or betraying secrets to the Russians or whatever, having communist sympathies. You know, I think they were more scared of where my sympathies really were. And of course the entire Frankenchrist album and Dead Kennedy's legacy was what re was really on trial. And so there was a big battle ahead of time. Any trial like this, even even like murder or robbery or shoplifting trials, you're going to have hearings first before they even see the jury on what evidence is admissible, admissible and what evidence is not admissible. And I think this took a whole week with the Frankenchrist trial. And there was a big battle about thematic content of H.R. Giger's art which was labeled penis landscape by a lot of people, but the real title, which is far more applicable to how it connects with the lyrics and the concept of Frankenchrist, was landscape 
number 20, you know, Roman numeral 20, where are we going? And I thought that image of all these organs going and all these holes, everybody exploiting, everybody else, what could be more Reagan's America than that? I mean, they're preaching, you know, you all got to be about yourself, me generation. Greed is good. Greed is good was a catchphrase. Well, no, greed is not good. And, you know, Frankenchrist as a whole, when I saw the Giger image, I thought, God, I want that to be the front cover. And if I change a few words here and there on lyrics I hadn't record, actually sung the vocals on yet, we've got a concept album here because at least there's a thread running through the whole thing. Thank you, Giger. This is what great art is. I'd never seen his work before until a roommate showed me some of his pictures in the magazine. I thought it was the best art I'd seen since Euronymous Bosch. And when you see really good stuff or you hear really good music you really like, same with film, same with uh, literature or, or whatever, or hear about a really good prank like those TikTok kids screwing up Trump's Oklahoma rally. <laughs> oh, my favorite prank in years. But anyway, um, you know, good art get, and, and creative crime is an art form. It's the one great art form that's not taught at art school. But creative crime is the other great art form. And um, anything like that, you get your, it, it, it does what I call brain spin, where suddenly you're getting all these ideas popping into your head, you know, stuff you may want to do, you want to think, you want to whatever. And uh, that was one of those brainstem periods where I saw all the Frankenchrist songs in a different light and realized they connected. And it was that Giger painting that caused that, that inspired that. And then our distributor said, no, 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 you can't put that on the outside of the cover as a gatefold and then have it open up to the picture of the Shriners on the inside with no artist's name or any other identification anywhere. That was the original. Nothing but Frankenchrist and candy cane writing across the gear painting on the front. And uh, he's saying, no, no store will stock that if you do that. You're going to have to fold it the other way. And then the band started freaking out about it after we licensed the image from Giger. And so the poster compromise was done, you know, by, by band consensus. You know, it wasn't really a vote like they claim. I realized that they were so, so heavy about this. I didn't want to lose the tour. I didn't want to lose that. Okay, we'll make it a poster because it's really important to me emotionally that that picture be part of the packaging. <laughs> and... Um, and they tried to use the warning sticker that was a parody of the PMRC stuff as an admission of guilt at the trial, where it was like, warning, this album contains an image that might, may shock or offend. Life can sometimes be that way. Which is my exact reply to all these people who want all this new censorship and trigger warnings and this, that, and the other. I know why... People want safe spaces. They don't want young Donald Trump types, you know, grabbing their ass at a music show or trying to corner them in a closet or whatever. I agree with that. But um, to try and, like, censor all these things ahead of time, so you have to tailor classroom curriculum or even stand-up comedy to take out anything that might offend one person for some reason that wouldn't offend anybody else, I am not down with that.
at all. I mean, there's some things that trigger trauma in me that wouldn't trigger it in anybody else. Therefore, that should not be censored. And I, I mean, even uh, there was a professor at the University of Colorado who was teaching a class using women in the class to demonstrate who had volunteered, you know, how sex workers work and stuff. And sure enough, I think it was the Christians in that class who objected. I think she eventually got run out of her job and stuff. But that's that's no different from HUAC, only it's the uh, House on American Activities Committee, you know, the Joe McCarthy era and all, than uh, that. And, of course, the House on American Activities Committee, I think their witch hunts for communism predated Joe McCarthy even taking public office. And... A big leader of it in the House, once again, you want to talk about divisive, Richard Nixon. Especially when it came he to played, Alger Hess. He was, like, well, Even before that, even before that, just to get himself into Congress and the House in the first place, Nixon started claiming his opponent, an incumbent Democrat named Jerry Voorhees, was a communist. No proof. No, nothing. He just kept saying communist, communist, communist. And, uh, and this was 46 or 48 or something. It was early. And sure enough, he beat him out. So then he promptly decides he'd rather be in the Senate and um, starts claiming that a very respected Senator woman, Helen Gehagen Douglas, who I believe was legendary Justice William O. Douglas's wife, if I'm not mistaken, at the time, he did the same thing, communist, 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 smeared her this way, smeared her that way, and he knocked her off. So he was doing this really early on. Deliberately starts a shouting match with Khrushchev in a kitchen somewhere when they're both at the same event, making sure the press is there to record it and photograph it and stuff. And, um, you know, that I mean... President Kennedy later, who barely beat Nixon and stuff, um, and Nixon did not try to smear the communists, which is, you know, in part because Kennedy was a little too pro-military and, you know, anti-communist for his own good at times. He was really to the right on that, although part of that was just, you know, he took that issue away from Nixon straight out. But if I'm not mistaken, you know, Kennedy kind of, got pressured by some people and without really thinking it through, he pulled the trigger on the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba, which of course ended disastrously and may have played a major role in Castro deciding maybe we should have some Russian missiles on our country so they don't do this again. And then they get the Cuban Missile Crisis. But um, the Bay of Pigs invasion was not organized by the Kennedy administration. It was the Eisenhower administration, apparently out of the office of Vice President Nixon. Another little gift of his. <laughs> Although, I got to say, I got to say, you think of really major what-ifs, forks in the road going both directions and stuff, that... Um, if Nixon had been president instead of Kennedy, and then we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, would any of us have ever been born? I mean, okay, I was already four or five at the time. I even have a memory of my dad taking me up on the 
bluff and we're looking out over the plains of Denver and, you know, and somebody's going to try and fire rockets at America. And he was somehow trying to tell his little boy about his own worries and stuff. You know, actually in a weird way, reaching out to me for support, just being able to explain this and stuff. And I think the only reason I'd even remember that is I only connected with it a few years later when I was still a kid. Wait a minute. That was the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was what that was about. And that wasn't just a one or two day thing. That went on for 13 nail biting days. And you're talking about cult cinema for this. Um, you know, I just showed my girlfriend 13 Days, the movie with Kevin Costner in it, who plays an obscure aide who was one of the go-betweens and stuff. And I thought that was a pretty good movie about that overall. And definitely a nail-biter because it really was a nail-biter and illustrates just how much closer we came to full nuclear war than most people even realize. Have you, you seen... You know, the K-19, K-19, the Widowmaker, is the other one about the other incident that's almost totally unknown where we also came that close to nuclear war. Have you seen the nuclear film uh, Threads out of the U.K.? You should check that out. That is a nail-biting two hours. <laughs> how long? How long ago was it made? Uh, nineteen. I want to say nineteen seventy-six. I might be off by a few uh -huh. years on that, but it's definitely I the seventies. Try and file it back in my head. I mean, it's supposed to be a cult cinema thing, and all we're talking about is uh, political history of dead Kennedys so far. But uh, but if we're going to do that, that's fine. But I have to move back to Mitch McConnell for a minute. Of course. You know, the Grim Reaper, that indescribably hideous uh, leader of the Senate who blocks everything good and cut off, you know, relief checks for everybody who's been nailed by COVID-19 and won't butter. It's dead on arrival. It's dead on arrival. It's dead on arrival. And whatnot. Um, has anybody besides me noticed he's a dead ringer for Gary Oldman's character in the Hannibal movie? <laughs> you know the multi-gazillionaire who's supposed to be living in what was actually the Vanderbilt mansion and stuff down in North Carolina and there he is just horribly disfigured because Hannibal skinned his face off but he survived when he wasn't supposed to and I thought oh my god that looks like somebody and then now I realize oh yeah it was, it, he looks like McConnell hey wait a minute that so is... much like McConnell I now demand proof that that character wasn't Gary Oldman at all, but it was McConnell playing himself. It's amazing that you say that because now when a movie is made out of all of this, it's already cast to Gary Oldman. So we just gave Gary Oldman some work right there. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen him portray Winston Churchill yet. I've heard he does a really, really good job. It is a really good job. I haven't seen... I haven't seen Christian American Psycho Dark Knight Bale playing Dick Cheney yet either. But uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna I don't tell know you. I even have the... I'm gonna tell you right Go now ahead. that you are gonna enjoy that film. Will I or won't I? Because I watched it all unfold in real time. I I, I think it's. Gonna... I knew I knew what Cheney was. 
and I saw what he was doing the whole time. I mean, at least Reagan knew he wasn't actually president, and he was just an actor pretending to be the president. <laughs> and the one bit of savant genius that's known about Ronald Reagan that kept getting him those, you know, usually fairly light but, you know, likable roles in the movies, at least until he punches Angie Dickinson in his final screen <laughs> appearance and the remake of The Killers and stuff. But uh, anyway... Um, Reagan apparently had this ability to look at any page of script, the whole thing, and have a photographic memory of it in his head from that point onward. So he'd only have to look at something once and then deliver his lines or whatever kind of role was and acting was required. Thus, he was so bizarre without his cue cards as president, but then when he had them, he knew exactly what to do and how to act as that kind of a president, tough guy against the Soviets, or, you know, Mr. Wolby, it's morning in America, as his, you know, as his friends were swindling the, and looting the store all over the place, and he knew damn well that's what they were doing and stuff. And he supported, I mean, he was a right-wing extremist by then anyway. You know, only people like the Bushes and Trump could make Reagan look moderate, let's put it that way. But um, W, on the other hand, he was so dumb, he thought he was president the whole time. I'm going to decide it. I'm going to decide. I decide when we go to war. I'm gonna, what should we do, Uncle Dick? And Uncle Dick was the real decider, of course. And um, he saw his opportunity. Well, you know, ask me to find your vice president. I've got the best possible one. Who's that, Uncle Dick? Me. Oh, okay, Uncle Dick. Now let's talk about some baseball. <laughs> and, uh, you, you know, that, that that's the way that thing was run. I mean, my girlfriend, I guess, didn't realize exactly what Cheney was because she watched that movie in the theater and just was shocked and couldn't believe it that he got away with all that. I'm saying, oh, no, he probably actually is worse than you realize. Like, do they have it in the movie that when he was Secretary of Defense for Daddy Bush, he was pushing and pushing and pushing to drop a nuclear bomb on Baghdad during the Gulf War. They like very, they very briefly touched on stuff like that. It's, I mean, they also people around him, at least at the time, it wasn't quite as insane as now. Had to pull President Nixon back from the brink repeatedly because he so badly wanted to drop a nuclear bomb on Hanoi. Do you find it shocking that no that no president, especially a right wing president, has actually dropped the bomb? Um, well, at least I'm relieved. I mean, there's been talks from Trump amok of nuking North Korea mm -hmm. until suddenly we fell in love, and then um, <laughs> and then uh, uh, didn't he talk about dropping a nuke on Iran? He too? did. Yes, he did. It might have weapons of mass destruction, so let's mass destroy them. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he is the great, greatest threat to world peace there is. Not ISIS, not Netanyahu, let alone Iran. It's him. Not Putin, it's him. And I think even a lot of his own staff knows it. Well, I want to go cinematic for a second here, though. Your time in Lard, you and Al were bringing some of the most cinematic music that either one of you have done in your entire career. What brought about that band 
And did you enjoy your time in Lard? Could we ever expect to see that ever come back? Al announces a new Lard album every three or four years. People get excited. It would really help if we actually recorded a note first. <laughs> I love it. He's like a field of Jorgensen-type dreams kind of guy. Claim it's happening and it will happen. <laughs> Although I knew after a while when he claimed he was going to top the fence and other stuff, with ministry, and next time he was going to have a tilde whirl on stage, but uh, <laughs> that never happened. <laughs> no, I, I, I um, yeah, it, it's kind of a long story with that. You're the first person who's ever said it's the most cinematic music either of us have ever done. I'm going to have to really think that through. Okay, before I go any further, why do you think it's that way? It has such a like a score element to it, and I just it's I guess it's the most visual of either one of your guys's entire bodies of work. To me, I will put a Lard album on, and I can visualize a movie, and it's a different movie each time. But it's such a visual thing to me when I throw one of those albums on. I think it's both your and Al's greatest achievement. I'm I'm going to go out there and say it. I think Lard is I think Lard is an incredibly underrated work from both of you guys. Well, you never know. I mean, he actually sent me a recording of something he wants as a cornerstone for more Lard within the last three months. So um, then he said he was going to send me about five more, but he never has. So <laughs> we shall see. It's not a bad time to do something like this because of COVID and no touring and everything else, the new Guantanamo School of Medicine album is finally almost done. I mean, I don't know if you've seen those videos yet or not for the song. First I've, time I've, 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 seen, the, I've ever... seen the video and it's fucking awesome. I'm, I'm super excited. Which one? Because there's, there's, three, there's three of them now that oh. we've posted and there's two more to come. There's actually, I, I, do, oh, I have not seen three of them. I know that. Oh, the one called We Created Putin? Yes, yes. Oh, here we go again, back to world affairs. I mean, <laughs> it just shocks me, and I stand by that title, and I detail it in the song as most rockin' lyrics I can without sounding like a foreign affairs academic or whatever. But, um, and this has been on my mind for at least a quarter century, that um, we got to go back to World War One here. Because after World War One, ah, let's just kick the Germans' ass. Punish the entire German people for what the Kaiser and those allies did. We're not going to help you at all. In fact, we want reparations, and we're going to steal your money, too. And so Germany got so horrible so quick, it really did take a wheelbarrow full of money to buy a loaf of bread. Squalor everywhere, ruined cities, this, that, and the other. What happens when people are that angry, that desperate, and that miserable, and that frustrated? Hitler. They look for a savior, you know, and in he walked, and then he did get the economy going, and blah, blah, blah. So, uh, you know, the, he was questioned less and less as things got more and more thick there. You know, well, at least we're not like the, we were in the 20s and stuff. And so after World War II, we learned. And uh, so there was, uh, you know, the Marshall Plan for 
Germany in, in World War II, and they, even the Soviets agreed on that at least part way, although they didn't do as much as we did. East, East Berlin was a wreck when I went there in 77 still. But, um, uh, but you know, we, we, we got democracy in place, rebuilt Japan, democratic countries, well on their own two feet, better economies than ours for a variety of reasons, even Japan, even now. And um, so what do you know? No more Hitlers. No more Tojos or anything like that. So then the Soviet Union collapses. And again, we act like it's World War I all over again and don't do dick all for the former Soviet Union, especially the Russians, and just leave them in the lurch. Except if there's ways to, like, get the International Monetary Fund in there to help plunder the place for us. Or, hey, we've got a whole new set of plantation workers besides Latin America or the Pacific Rim. Well, let's just treat them that way and just not really help them in anything. And sure enough, misery, frustration, and one fascist nut job almost seized power, I think... I think Clinton was still president, actually. I'm pretty sure he was. Remember Vladimir Zhirinovsky? I do, yes. Who out of nowhere started this party, and suddenly he had the largest block of goons and the whole Duma, the Soviet parliament or Congress or whatever. And, you know, you know, oh, is this guy really going to be the leader? Is Yeltsin that weak and drunk all the time? Watch out for this guy. And uh, because he was such a lunatic, he also got made a... a a pop star in the form of the new big villain in the Western corporate media, not without reason. Here was this Yahoo who was running a heavy metal boutique, and then all of a sudden he's poised to take over Russia, gets in fist fights with opponents on the floor of the Duma, which may still be going on. I think he's still there. Calls a press conference in front of a map of greater Russia, and of course no more Estonia, no more Latvia, no more Finland either. I mean, just a buffoon, but a really dangerous Hitlerian buffoon, to put it mildly. And I thought, here we go again for the same reasons. Luckily, he's too untogether that he's never going to get control of the whole country. But this is setting the table for a smart Zhirinovsky, and then we're in real trouble. And who was already plotting his rise but a guy named Putin? And the rest of that song is about, you know, of course, you know, the way he's got Trump by the short hairs. And there's all kinds of speculation on that about the P tape and, you know, that, that Putin bribed him by having a friend of his buy a white elephant mansion in Florida that Trump had paid $40 million for. Suddenly this guy buys it for $100 million and he never moves in. Can't remember his name. He's a fertilizer tycoon. He's been linked to some other dirty stuff in regards to, you know, collusion with the Russians and the Trump campaign and everything. It's not Kislyak. That was the ambassador. It's somebody else. Can't remember his name. But anyway, or no, Trump just wanted famously to put up Trump Tower in Moscow and use the Russians' money because he, you know, that's what he does. He doesn't have enough of his own to put up those towers. He just licenses his name and sends Ivanka over to inspect the property now and again. But um, there's a bigger reason than that, and that's where this gets. Not only did we set the stage 
for a Hitler or totalitarian guy who wants to expand his territory and really, really mess with us to take over in the form of Vladimir Putin. But then, and they, they found, you know, this was alluded to later, in golfing magazine, or maybe even two of them, either Donald Jr. or Eric Trump, you know, two of his monster children, the two oldest dudes, um, uh, were, were interviewed about, you know, there's a big new Trump golf resort opening here. And, uh, but it's 2009. The banks won't lend money to anybody. How did you finance this? Oh, we don't need American banks. We use Russian banks. So it's even possible the two Trump monster children said the same thing in two different interviews in two different sports magazines. I don't know. But at least one of them said that. And that just kind of confirmed what I already suspected, because the American banks quit lending to Trump around the turn of our current century because he ripped them off every single time. You know, he knew how to work the bankruptcy laws, and so did his dad, whereby, you know, he'd borrow a bunch of money, declare bankruptcy, and then not pay it back or pay it back pennies on the dollar, then go running to another bank when that bank would lend to him again. And the New York banks began to talk to each other, realize you can't trust this guy. No more money for you, Donald. Go harass some other women or banks somewhere. And um, so then he took out, what, $300 million from Deutsche Bank, maybe more the same German bank that was caught laundering for ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Mexican drug cartels. And I do believe Trump money for the campaign, too. I don't know. They connect that way as well. But anyway... As far as anybody can tell, as anybody has reported, Trump has not paid back a dime of that $300 million. And he may owe Deutsche Bank more, but then they cut him off. So where does he go next? But the Russians, they go, oh, they're suckers. I'll just take money from them. I won't pay them back either. It is not so simple, Donald. You take money from me. I will poison Ivanka. You know, basically, no bank gets to be a bank big enough to lend to Trump out of Russia unless they're mob. Who is the head of the Russian mob? Widely reported to be a guy named Vladimir Putin. So basically, Trump is on the hook by the balls to the Russian mafia. Yeah, because and that's why he does whatever Putin tells him to do. And, you know, that, that's the end of, by the end of the song, too. It's any time, anywhere, gorging cheeseburgers in your bed, my agents will poison you and poison Ivanka, too! <laughs> and sadly, within days of us dropping the video, Putin's last surviving major opponent, who wasn't around to run against him in the last election, Alexei Navalny, sure enough, he gets poisoned. It's like Putin is like, yeah, what are you going to do to stop me? <laughs> America was tough once, but not now. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that, that's what's hanging over Trump and why, even though he's reckless about everything and everybody else, he never crosses Putin. He's scared he's going to die. Is this, uh, is this new album done? Are you finished recording? Um, we're still getting the mastering done on it, and that's the last part. I mean, the songs are recorded, they're mixed. We've, uh, the first video we put out was called Taliban USA, 
about you know rabid anti-abortion. You know they call the Muslims who do these terrorist things Islamists. Fine. We have a bigger problem in this country with Christianists, including bombs on abortion clinics and shooting doctors and everything else. And so uh, it's about that basically. And um, it dropped right when the Supreme Court handed down their latest ruling on abortion. Everybody thought they were going to blow up Roe versus Wade once and for all. Damn it, Roberts and company punted for the next year so as not to impact the election. And they're going to blow it up next year with another case instead, thus wrecking the viral potential of my video. <laughs> but uh, it's still gotten a lot of views for good reason. Good song, good video. And then the next one after that was called The Last Big Gulp, which, as you might guess, is about the way we are treating what was called global warming, and then corporate cartoon McNews decided, you know, that's scaring too many people into not buying SUVs or winterizing their homes. We can't have that. Let's just call it climate change. It's not warming. It's changing. So I relabel it climate collapse. But in the meantime, there's all these people just running around buying bigger and bigger monster trucks and just wasting more and more and more stuff like there's no tomorrow because they, too, know there's no tomorrow. But their logic is, hey, in that case, let's just waste as much as we can today. Plus, there's arch-fundamentalists who have been put in charge of the Environmental Protection Agency, the Department of the Interior, Department of Education, and even the vice president who are all these end times guys who think that, you know, Jesus is about to come back. And when he does, he's going to put back all the trees, all the stuff we strip mine, we'll get all the oil back, and everything will be nice and clean. And even though we've run up these gigantic deficits, Jesus loves America best. We all know that, so he's going to put all the money back, too. <laughs> they believe that. They believe that, too, about the money. I mean, the first guy who was... Uh, one of these was the guy Reagan put in as Secretary of the Interior over all the land, not just the national parks, but all the land. His name was James Watt. And he, too, looked like more of some weird-ass space alien guy with these, you know, those giant TV shoe-shaped glasses and big Coke bottle lenses and huge bald head. I mean, he wasn't quite like Richard Keel in that episode of We Serve Man, but you you find him and just, you know, be afraid, be very afraid. And James Watt is Pentecostal, and he was in part chosen as a favor to Reagan's good buddy Joseph Coors of the Coors Beer Fortune fame, although Joseph ran the Coors Porcelain part that makes missile and makes missile nose cones, rare earth mineral stuff, so he's going to want all the strip mines and everything. But anyway, um, James Watt comes out and proposes selling national parks. We ought to have a tram going up Half Dome in Yosemite. Why can't we have Disney running these things and run it right? Everything should be making a profit, or we should get rid of it. And we need to quickly accelerate drilling off of all coasts. And we need to clear-cut the forest as fast as possible. No more rules on that. No more rules on mining. We just need to get going with this. And the reporter at the press conference asked, well, what about our children? And he got that weird little grin on his face. Well, by then we will have seen the second coming of the Lord. And that was what first alerted me to this mindset. 
And sure enough, George W. Bush's interior secretary, Gail Norton, came from the same legal foundation that's run with Coors money and whatnot out of Denver that James Watt did. She basically took its place at the same job. And then, of course, Sarah Palin is an end times person. And um, Susan Baker and James Baker were part of that. And uh, you wonder, you know, Palin even said on a, morning interview show after she wasn't going to be vice president after all, but suddenly she was just addicted to her own fame and couldn't keep off of TV long enough. And she was saying, you know, well, we have to expand the Israeli settlements even more because a lot of Jews are going to be moving there very soon. That's rapture talk. That's book of revelations and time stuff. And the whole fundamentalist Christian motive for putting so much money into that horrible Israeli settler movement to make sure it never goes back to the 67 borders is they want even more territory for Israel because they want a, uh, you know something from biblical times. It's got to be that far expanded or Jesus isn't going to come back. Then you ask the Jewish extremists, the Israeli extremists, in Israel, why are you taking money from these people who say you're all going to hell because you're Jews unless you convert to their evangelical Christianity the second that Jesus comes back? And they're just like, uh, 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 we just take their money. I mean, that was what people there told me about the settlers and stuff. But um, so I keep hoping in one of these you know, kind of non-press conferences that Trump's about to get his chopper or whatever, when he just starts going off on all kinds of weird things like sticking LED lights up your ass or drinking <laughs> bleach or whatever, that um, <laughs> a reliable source told me it'll cure COVID-19. <laughs> all right, Donald, drink some right now. Please, it's on me. You don't even have to pay for it. No black people touched it, I promise. <laughs> Ivanka says you should. <laughs> anyway, um, but somebody, when he's in one of those tangents, needs to ask Trump if he believes in the end times. Because the problem with an end times believer, and people had worries about this with Reagan, because he was another one and stuff. You know, the dictator of El Salvador comes to visit Washington. They sat outside on the back lawn of the White House and talked about the end of the world and nothing else the whole time he was there. But, uh, you know, Jose Napoleon Duarte. But uh, anyway, they need to ask Trump if he believes in the end times like his vice president does and see what comes out of his mouth. Because what people don't take into account because he so obviously worships himself and sins like there's no tomorrow, although that's part of the mechanisms of the Catholic Church, too, right? You sin and sin and sin, then you go confess, and then you go out and do it some more because you've been forgiven and stuff, and that's how it works. But um, Trump was raised in the church, in the megachurch of a TV preacher, a guy named Norman Vincent Peale who broadcast out of Manhattan and stuff. And um, 
you know, he was what I guess you might call now call prosperity gospel, sort of, you know, God helps those who help themselves and help yourself as much as possible, doesn't matter how you get there, and, you know, you'll be saved all this money and stuff. No wonder Trump's dad was in Peel's church. And uh, so young Donnie was raised in Norman Vincent Peel's church, and of course, being the Trumps, they made a point of knowing Peel personally, and Peel even did Donald and Ivana's wedding. He wouldn't do Donald and Marla Maples later. He refused, but uh, he did that one. So those teachings still fester somewhere in that wacky brain of Dirty Donnie Trumpamock. Somewhere in there, it is there. That's why I get worried when he threatens nuclear stuff on North Korea, or he starts threatening Iran, or supporting Israel it taking over the entire West Bank permanently and expanding from there, or wanting a war with Venezuela, war with Iran, whatever. Is this guy trying to bring on the end times as he sees it? We need a nuclear war to do that, even though that's not in the Bible for obvious reasons. But, um, you know, some of these people, you know, the Antichrist, the Beast, or whatever, some people who were raised really religious tell me that, you know, those figures are not necessarily portrayed as pure evil. You know, the, 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 so they're actually doing favors because it's bringing our prophet back, the second coming, second coming of Christ. What happens, and people are worried about this with Reagan, what happens if Reagan decides he's the Antichrist and it's time to do his job? And you got to worry about that with Trump, too. You just got to. It is funny that you mentioned Peel because he really respected and, I guess, listened to what Edith Perkle was teaching in the 60s and 70s. All you need to do is go back and listen to Edith Perkle to know how absolute batshit crazy that is. And if he's taking any of that. I've never even heard, I've never even heard of her. Oh, no, it's, it's a him. It's a preacher. He had really culty, like, fucking weird... I don't even know spell how to... His first, spell his first and last name. Uh, hold on. I don't want to get it wrong. Let me just type it in. Well, just send it to me later because this is a... We're on the radio. <laughs> so, uh, but, but yeah... And I can't... I, I got I to gotta go in a little while too here. So... Uh, but yeah, Edith Perkle was batshit crazy. So if anything of that is continuing through time and is going to be brought up again, look the fuck out. But I, I do want to go back to the Kennedys for a minute because it's always curious to me when I think about hardcore music and lawsuits, what, it, what is it about hardcore and always having a member wanting to tamper with legacies? And why does there always have to be lawsuits on all these big, just hardcore bands? Do you, do you notice this trend when it comes to your contemporaries? Not as much as you seem to. I mean, the ugliest, of course, was the dead Kennedy one. And, you know, now they wonder why I won't go back with them so they can break in millions of dollars on reunion tours and stuff. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd actually rather work in an Amazon warehouse than work for them, or especially the people in their posse now. I just don't trust them. I don't like them. I don't respect them. And I don't want to disrespect the music or our legacy. I'm doing something like that. What if your favorite band reforms? You go see them and they suck. 
I want no part of that. I mean, those guys are also allergic to rehearsals. So, uh, and I keep getting complaints that they sound like it too. <laughs> I keep telling people there's nothing I can do at this point. Nothing. You know, they want a version of Too Drunk to, Drunk to Fuck and a rape scene in a Tarantino movie. I can't stop them. You know, it's actually the one that Rodriguez directed in the Grindhouse ones where, um, you know, Tarantino's character, which is called The Rapist, mm-hmm. you know, has the gun on um, Rose McGowan telling her dance bitch and stuff. I just didn't think that was an appropriate use of Too Drunk to Fuck. I even told him somewhere else in the song, I don't care. Or somewhere else in the movie, I don't care. I'm not going to be Tipper Gore about that, but you don't put my shit in a fucking rape scene. No. So, uh, and there's been some other things I've had to head off at the past, as well as some I was unable to, but, you know, it's money Uber Alice and stuff, and I, I don't want any part of that. And, the, and you know, I'd rather earn my money honestly, thank you. But, um, I don't know, I think to, to, to blanket that over hardcore is not fair. I mean, I'm curious how many others you're even going to be able to name well, who actually sued each other. I black black flag comes comes to mind right away. Well, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's uh, basically Greg Ginn's lawyer owns the label that East Bay Ray pimped our music to. Manifesto. Mm-hmm. That's how objectionable this whole thing has become. But. Um, and, 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 you know, Greg Ginn has been involved in a lot of other ones. You know, his war with negative land that got legal and everything else. And of course, all the people have wondered where their money was and stuff. Um, but, again, now you've only named two bands. True. And, and now, now, now you're putting me on the spot, and I'm going to have a hard time coming up with more. So. <laughs> I, yeah, because if it happened, if it happened, I'd know about it. I mean, there was some stuff that went down to the Vandals, too. But um, overall, I don't think that's fair. And overall, you have to realize that this goes across the board for any kind of popular or semi-popular music. Mm-hmm. It's happening all over. It has happened all over the place forever and ever and ever. I mean, an obvious one being George Harrison's My Sweet Lord being ruled in court to being a direct rip of He's So Fine by a girl group. I think it was the Chiffons. And he got completely nailed on that. Surprisingly, the uh, suit filed on behalf of the guy in spirit, Randy California, who died, actually. Um, And apparently one of the other people in spirit was actually behind it shake led zeppelin down over stairway to heaven um i think that one's still bouncing back and forth and that intro to stairway to heaven is note for note the same as a spirit song and their claim being that led zeppelin and spirit played gigs together early on and stuff but sometimes it's accidental i mean the last guantanamo school of medicine album called white people were damaged done for my current band I can't remember which song the other guys got all bent out of shape about because one of the riffs they said was lifted from a Beatles song called Hey Bulldog. And I was just flabbergasted because I had never even heard of that song. 
And then they played me the song, and not only had I never heard that song in my life, but the riff was not identical either. So my riff stayed, and no more about that was said. And, um, but, uh, let's see, I gotta go in a bit, but we, we wandered away from lard. So I guess we gotta get back to the power of lard and what lardcore means to me <laughs> and all that. Um, I, uh, basically, um, I had crossed paths with Al periodically for a long time because I was old friends with Jim Nash and Danny Flesher because the original wax track store that the label grew out of was in Denver, not in Chicago. And I met them there on the ground floor and they were really supportive of punk when nobody else was and really against synthesizers and disco too at that time as well. But, um, you know, so we, we had our jousting matches because I'd buy the Tangerine Dream albums in addition to, you know, the latest damn single or something. What are you buying that shit for? <laughs> and stuff. But uh, anyway, then they moved to Chicago and I go to the store, catch up with my friends. And then I think even the first time I was there, at least the second, you know, their label was starting to get going and their first flagship band, now that they put out the Divine single and, you know, which was their first legitimate release because they'd already done a New York Dolls bootleg when they were still in Denver and a New Order bootleg in Chicago. Oh, they didn't strike under. The only punk release ever on Wax Tracks was the one after Divine by, um, yeah, by Strike Under. Great record, too. I think at least one of them went into Naked Ray Gun and... Um, and we that Kennedy played with both those bands the first time we played in Chicago and Naked Reagan had a little bit of a more artier sound at that point than they eventually became known for. And um kind of more like my libido is low without the heavy guitar explosions the song eventually got and stuff was closer to the old Naked Reagan sound. But anyway, which you can experience on the Busted at Oz compilation LP about the Oz venue in Chicago. Anyway, okay, so going back, hanging out of store after hours, and yeah, we got his band Ministry and stuff, but you know, we've put this one out, and uh, but this is an earlier one. We we decided not to release. It only became a test pressing, and it rocked more than the Ministry they did put out. It was still post-punk, very Bauhaus and whatever inspired, but it was in that class of how good it was. And I was like, why won't you release this? At least make a tape of it for me, which they did on the spot. And I took it home. And, you know, this is the ministry I really, I really, really liked. I think it was, oh, what was the songs called? One was I'm Falling, which they re-recorded in a theory version. What was the other one? Overkill, that was the name of it. And um, so then, you know, maybe the next time I crossed paths with Al on the stairs, going upstairs where Jim and Danny actually lived and offices were, and he was very friendly and stuff, and clearly you know, knew Dead Kennedy for and everything else and dug that addition to what he was doing. And so we just run into each other here and there. Then I get another tape at Wax Tracks of a still never released song when Arista Records tried to glue two artists on their label together just to see if some really amazing fireworks happened. And unfortunately, it only lasted one song and that was the end of that. Iggy Pop and Al... And I think Al did the music on it. It was called Fire Engine. And it was 
you know, it was electronic with post-punk guitar. It was just pile driving. Really, really good song. It finally emerged with another guy singing on it decades later on the uh, Cocked and Loaded album that uh, Revolting Cox put out. Uh, the one that I'm on, a couple songs, too. Um, and I would have done Fire Engine. Al asked me, but I was like, if you really think you can get Iggy to do it, I'm not going to step on that. You know, anybody else but him singing it is a cardinal sin. But ultimately, Ig didn't, and he got another guy. So I did uh, Dead End Streets and Viagra Culture. But so I took note of that. Like, why doesn't this guy make more of this? And then he was back on Wax Tracks. I played the Everyday is Halloween 12 inch. They give me that on the road. And like, for this kind of music, this guy is so good. He's almost as good as my friend Christian Lunch. We put on Let's Make Jelly Beans. And um, next thing that happens, this mysterious record arrives. The Maximum Rock and Roll reviews it. And it's by Tailhead. And just from the description of it, I thought that's got to be Al. <laughs> and then I heard the record, and it just blew me through the wall. As much as I love Big Black, this was like by far the best Big Black song that Big Black never did <laughs> and beyond. I was like, oh my God, okay, I got to find this guy. Because, uh, you know, we're trying to try this unreleased album loose from Christian Lunch, and maybe he can remix it, it'll sound that good. And so then Revolting Cox came to town, and Al and I hung out, and he was playing some of the stuff that would become Land of Rape and Honey. I was like, yeah, man, at a party. I'm like, yeah, man, I'm telling everybody, bitch, your synthesizers by Marshall Stacks. And uh, so then plans were made, and I went to uh, South Haven, Michigan, I think it was for the memorial for my grandparents, and then came down and came to Chicago to work on Christian Lunch, and then got the shock of my life as to how those guys worked. And on day two, they were still trying to get the snare sample perfect on one song. It's like, oh, my God, this is going to take forever, and I can't afford this, blah, blah, blah. So ultimately, after about three songs, like, you know, we can't really do this. Why don't we just do something ourselves? And then Al said, that was kind of what I wanted to do anyway. What should we call it? And then the first name that came into my head was Lard. And Al fell on the floor laughing, and Lard was born. <laughs> so we went in the next day and started on Power of Lard, and then uh, the, did the other, the other two for... Uh, what became the Power of Lard EP. We also did a little bit of tracking, including some vocals, for a reconfigured version of the never-released ministry song I like so much called Overkill. And I called it Once Upon a Time in the Woods, since even in the original lyrics, things just go more and more wrong for somebody as the song goes on. You know, it ends, we, she should have stayed home, he should have stayed home, etc. So I kept that and made new lyrics, new title, but we never finished it. And then Al said later he didn't want to because I was just a kid when I wrote that. And then years later he said, no, it was going to be finished. And I, I, don't, I think the master tape has deteriorated now, so not sure if that was going to get done. But that was the first batch. And that came out well enough that Al wanted to make more, and so did I. I didn't even have a band then, really, and understood the restrictions. Because, well, number one, his style and my more organic style from all the Dead Kennedy songs. I wrote most of Dead Kennedy's music, too, even despite what the others now claim. And um, 
you know, but you couldn't really do a song like Chemical Warfare or Riot or whatever with different tempo changes and things like that in the way Al works. And so, um, you know, I kind of had to, okay, this is what this is going to be. And then a lot of my old stuff is going to go somewhere else someday. But um, at least for my last temptation of Reed, I did, you know, and then learned this about Al, too. I demoed about 15 songs and brought him in, and he rejected all but three of them. You know, he kept Pineapple Face and... um, Oh, what's the guy who pulls all his teeth out because he thinks there's wires in there? Why am I spacing on the title? And then 70s Rock Must Die that came out later was the next one. And, um, oh, why am I spacing on that? Can God Fill Teeth? That's the name of that one. Anyway, um, so uh, then we made the full length. You know, another thing I'm grateful for is that, uh, you know, I'm obviously a big fan of most of Al's work as well. And Ministry is still one of the best live bands in the world. He doesn't even have to work the stage that hard himself. It's just a full sonic assault. I mean, he does not skimp on sound or, you know, getting the best sound mix that he possibly can to make it all work will put up with his demands with sound check, like trying to make everything be as loud on stage and sound exactly like one of his albums and stuff and not stop till he gets it, <laughs> if he gets it. <laughs> and all the echoes he put on songs of me, like I want to be a drug-sniffing dog. We did that song live. They had to drill with a sound man the echoes until it was exactly what Al wanted. And, um, and, they, and they were in time and stuff. So, um, you know, and so, uh, you know, try to see him hook up with him whenever I can. And, uh, that's for good times. And we bonded over having similar, really wild ass senses of humor too. And, uh, even back then, even though it didn't come out till later, you know, Al had a very good political mind. You talk about how me and Joey knew what was going on in the real world as well as how he felt about things. I mean, even back when the lyrics were, were, you know, intentionally not all that political, at least before Daddy Bush took office, Al was still reading two newspapers a day, every day. You know, first thing he got up, coffee, at Chicago Tribune, Chicago Sun-Times, every day. So he was always well-informed and pretty well-read, and there was all the time with Timothy Leary and all that good stuff. And he also, there's this kind of, the way things, I don't think I'm the only one that has this happen with him, where things, this energy gets put in a different way, in a certain way where the thing you call brain spin comes back again and just stuff starts coming into your head. You know, we're going to make something new instead of work on Christian lunch. What the fuck am I going to do for lyrics? We've got to do these tomorrow. And so I kept jotting down every single one-liner I liked that I'd never found a home for, cutting advertising slogans and headlines out of the Chicago Tribune and moving them all around like a burrow's cut-up or something until I, a tactic I've used to clear back to the man with the dogs when I've absolutely had to. And um, Power of Lard was born. And only later did I realize there was a thread with all that stuff in that song because of, you know, how the power of lard controls our behavior and intimidates us, you know, where, 
you know, the more you get people ashamed of their own bodies and their own appearance on a really, really deep level, and unfortunately women and girls get beat up on about this more than anybody else, you know, their parents, their schools, their friends, and of course the and that's the power of lard, and it is the power of you know, you have to reject the power of lard consciously, or you will, at the very least, be what they now call an influencer. And um, so then, um, then a power of lard had come out, and they flew me back out to guest on those three songs for um, the very first shows on the Mind is a Terrible Thing to Taste tour. And they sure were different from the club show that the Land of Rape and Honey Ministry played and stuff. There was that fence, and there were all these other people in the band. It was heavy and wall of sound as hell, and all this chaos going on and stuff. And um, suddenly there were two drummers. Suddenly there were four guitar players. <laughs> when Al had his on, which he needs to do more of, I think. He's a really, really good guitar player when you really see what he can do. And a good piano player, too, keyboards, whatever. Um, anyway, so uh, that was, I, I got there for that, and then I heard part of the new album because he walked into the recording sessions for the album I was doing with DOA, at Profile in Vancouver because he was producing a Skinny Puppy album. So he was in town too. And he and Ogre walked into the studio. We were making to go ahead and interrupt. So he played some new stuff. He played, um, I think he only played two songs actually. He played an instrumental he said he was saving for lard. And he played Burning Inside, which is still my favorite ministry song. And I sing you know, basically the same riff as uh, NWO, which is on the next album. I always thought Burning Inside was better. Favorite ministry song to this day. And then the other instrumental was what would become Fork Boy. And so the engineer, Cecil English, had never heard anything like that in his life and was suitably floored both on the riffage and the productions. And uh, I, Joe was there too. I'm not sure he was as into it, but he couldn't very well not be, because what it was, we were playing it like studio speaker loud, too. And so then I come out to do these shows that start the Mind is a Terrible Thing to Taste tour, and, um, you know, already really excited and getting ready for a sound check on the first night and stuff. We got to drill this shit real quick, and... um, you know, usually the way I work is I melt in a really hot bath, relax all my muscles, then do all these stretches I learned in an acting class at UC Santa Cruz, and then I'm pretty much better, you know, ready to go, move around on stage, all that good stuff. But while I'm in the bath, there goes that brain, and both the music and at least the subject, if not the lyrics, the pineapple face just all unfolded in my head, fully formed. And, you know, things like that happen around him. You know, you just start getting ideas, fucked up ideas you wouldn't get otherwise. He wanted my vocals on a couple of this Revolting Cox comeback album thing, the Cox and Loaded one. He said, yeah, th- th- this one, 
All I know is I want the chorus to be, this is Viagriculture, this is the USA. <laughs> and that was enough where it set off, you know, a lyric I really like, I'm really proud of about, it, you know, all the stuff, obsession with winning and how it damages everybody and stuff. And uh, I wouldn't have thought of that otherwise. You know, first in war, first in guns, first in beauty, first in blood, first in space, first to first base, first in bloody aftertaste. This is Viagra culture. This is the USA. <laughs> then the next verse, from what I can remember, me, Arnold, you, girls gone wild. This is how life must be to keep the sheep asleep. I love that line, and I don't think I would have thought of it otherwise. So we, we, uh, yeah, we, we just throw things uh, off each other. You know, he wanted to do a minute logo for ministry, and we talked about the DK logo, and I just told him, yeah, it needs to be something that can be easily spray-painted. And then later on, the Circle M arrives. So uh, he actually even credited me for that in an interview. So that was cool. So we'll see. Hopefully another large someday, somehow. But it has to exist first. I mean, the, the second one, Pure True and Satisfaction, he wasn't really interested in me bringing in any of the music. And a lot of it was, you know, stuff they just didn't find homes for in uh, Psalm 69 and the later ones. And at one point, Al got all mad at me because I did what I thought was a favor to him and released the Skate Nigs album in the UK on AT. And then he had a falling out with the Skate Nigs, so he was mad at me for putting the album out. But uh, that eventually ebbed. But in the meantime, it's like, God, all those great Lard songs are going to be lost now. And I put a lot of work into the words, everything else. They're really cool. And out comes Filth Pig, and not one of those songs was on there. And I thought, oh, shit. Does this mean... There, those riffs are never going to see the light of day at all. But luckily, then Al finally decided he wanted to finish them and stuff. And oh, and by the way, here's what two more, three more, something like that. Yeah, I think it was three, two, maybe three. No, three at least. And so then we we did Pure uh, Chewing Satisfaction, which I kind of did on my own, and then he came in and mixed it when I was still in Chicago and stuff. And then Presto, we got the other one out. And finally got 70s Rock Must Die finished, too. Because they got burnt out on doing nothing but large for weeks and didn't want to do it anymore and get it done. That one didn't get finished. It was supposed to be a separate project called Leather and Hair. And I wanted it a parody on the, you know, kind of wannabe major label grunge band thing that was starting up. And he was thinking more parody of Guns and Roses and Poison. But... Uh, Came in the middle with leather and hair. But we never did a B-side. He wanted to cover the Humble Pie version of I Don't Need No Doctor, the Ray Charles song, which would have been dynamite. But uh, we never got that far. But at least it finally came out. But the other painful thing about uh, 70s Rock Must Die, you'll notice I sing it in barely on-key falsetto. And that thing is high, even not in falsetto for me and Al was there when I was cutting those vocals and he would not accept anything but falsetto and then he's like yep, no gotta do it again 
You know, he wanted Brian Johnson, basically. And so he was like, yeah, yeah, you know what that guy's, you know what that guy's like. You know, he comes on. You know, I wanted to be like a New York City cab driver trying not to piss his pants. That was his description of Brian Johnson's stage presence and all. So take after take, finally got enough of that that we could pull it off. And then a couple of his friends did the backups and were way more on key than I was because they were more used to singing that way. But then, well, come on, well, come on, seven days to rock this day. You know, and, um, and Al wanted to do it live. And I'm like, I'm not doing this again. <laughs> if I can drop it two octaves. And, um, but we never, I don't think we... We, no, we, we never never approached that again. But um, I couldn't talk for two days after I did those vocals. So no falsetto on stage like that. Mike Patton, he's got the chops. Fine, do it. <laughs> Even Wesley Willis could do a screaming falsetto when he wanted to. You know, it would occasionally come out. And it was obviously came from the choir in the black church where he went when he was younger before schizophrenia hit. And he eventually got banned from the church for outbursts in church and stuff. But, um, yeah, again, real curious about why Lard was cinematic because he talked about... Um, some of the other ones, like Riot and the whole second side of plastic surgery disasters, the second Dead Kennedys album, the Holiday in Cambodia, and some of the others. Um, to me, those are almost more cinematic and more theatrical and stuff. And I'm like, why am I coming up with these progoid multi-part punk songs that clearly have chapters and scenes and everything else? like a play or a movie or something. Oh, uh, well, my parents were classical music people, so I heard a lot of it growing up, not realizing till much later it was probably more because of Alice Cooper, you know, especially Killer and the School's Out album. My favorite of all of them is, is uh, Love It to Death. It's cruder, it's dark, it's got, and it has black juju on it. So in Ballad of Dwight Fry, how can you go wrong? But um, but I think that's where some of that came from. So to me, some of the others are more systematic, cinematic. And I've always been pretty conscious of vibe and uh, mood. I mean, you switch the lyrics between Nazi Punk Fuck Off and Moon Over Marin, neither song is going to work as well, is it? No. So uh, you got to be conscious of what fits what. And my musical taste is wide enough. I always wanted, you know, our songs not to sound like everybody else's songs. And we came from further enough back in the San Francisco punk underground. It was still a very small scene. And you know, the pressure, the peer pressure was not that every band must sound the same. It was every band must sound different or we're not interested. Especially because your audience here is the people in the other bands and almost nobody else. So, uh, you know, the, the, that was, a, that was a, a motivating factor and kind of what I liked anyway. And the sources and inspirations come from all over the place, too. Just, you know, I'll listen to one kind of music and then some harmony to what I'm hearing will come into my head 
and it may be a completely different kind of music. And then, okay, shut the stereo off, play with it, flip my recorder on and just play with it and stuff and see what comes out. And, you know, sometimes amazing things happen. And that's how I get a lot of this stuff. And, um, and I, I did have like, like a, some pretty decent high powered method acting training as a teenager. You know, I, I had the so-called Boris Karloff role in Arsenic and Old Lace, and the really heavy one was when we did uh, a play called The Lark, which was the other play that's like St. Joan, which is the the, uh, the main character is Joan of Arc at her trial and stuff. And um, uh, the director, Barbara Moore, thought that she finally had a good enough actress after all these years, Jane Shepard, who could actually play Joan of Arc that she thought was the most difficult role in theater to play. And so finally she got her Joan of Arc play and I played the one person of the, you know, I can't call it an inquisition because the main villain was known as the inquisitor on this panel of clerics who was judging Joan and stuff. And I was the only one who had a conscience and was realized it was something was not right here and would go down and visit her in her cell and to beg her to just capitulate this little bit and I could save your life and she was having none of it. And that woman on the straw, I could only see on the ground in that musty fucking jail cell, only Jay and I, Jay and I could see and feel and the temperature of it. You know, it wasn't Jane anymore. That woman looking at me was somebody else and I was getting nowhere with her. So that was what I talked about with, with, you know, that kind of acting where you're actually leaving your own body and somebody else is coming in. I mean, that was the most, you know, deepest, most intense experience of that kind I've had. Jane went on to make films, too, and stuff, mainly as a director. It's one of the short called Earning the Day of all the different voices and characters in her head bawling her out for not getting anything done when she wakes up and stuff. And we'd reconnected after all these years, so she wanted me to play the Marine drill sergeant, but travel schedules wouldn't allow it. So she got the guy who played the Inquisitor back in Boulder High, who hadn't really done much acting since and had kind of ups and downs in his life. So it meant the world to him to be able to do that with James. So I'm happy for him. And I haven't actually been able to see the movie to see how he played that guy. It would be different from the way I did, I'm sure. I mean, I, I made it as far as readings at rehearsals, so... They kind of knew what I was going to do with a bad guy and stuff. But anyway, um, where were we? Well, do, do one you, more question. We barely talk about cinema at all. Well, do, do you have time for one more question? Because I'm, it's not directly cinema, but I've always been curious whose idea was it on the Tool commentary track to have the, the overdubbing dialogue be, between yourself? Um. I don't know what they ever used on that. They never, um, they never, uh, I could do anything I wanted with it. I mean, Adam's a pretty good friend and he did the, the claymation or whatever it is on, on that. That was his video. And, um, so, uh, I, uh, I think they wanted commentary from somebody who dug, oh, this was great for this reason. This is great for that reason. Like, okay, here's some of that okay, let's record some more. And first, how would it be if Beavis and Butthead were the commentators <laughs> instead? So I, I don't know whether Beavis and Butthead got in. 
I also did Bush and Cheney. And I think I brought in Condoleezza Rice at one point, too. And I don't know if I did anybody else or not, but I know there was a Bush one, and I know there was Beavis and Butthead. And I don't know what he used. I, it's kind of like a mix between all of that, really. Because it's like, it's it's a little hard to determine exactly what's going on because it's multiple tracks happening at once. It's a little hard to pick out exactly what's going on. It's really funny. I think both uh, yours and David Yao's commentary tracks on both those tool videos are absolutely hilarious. And yeah, I've always, I've, I've always just been curious of like how those came to be. Yeah, well, I, I, I was just asked to do it. I never did it at the same time as David Yao, who also has been doing film acting as of late, too. And he and I are both in the same movie that's barely gotten around called An American in Texas. I mean, yeah, that's what it's called, about a kind of a personal screenplay of somebody who grew up in a little town of Victoria, Texas, kind of coming of age, being a misfit punk rocker and juvenile delinquent with their friends, the ups and downs, kind of a cross between SL, what I think SLC punk is, which I've never seen, and, um, oh, come on, what's the Bogdanovich movie in the small town in Texas? that Sybil Shepherd was in, among others, famous movie. The Last Picture Show. That's the one. Yeah, another small town in Texas movie. That's why I thought of that. And um, I play the mayor of the town, the cowboy hat and a tie with oil derricks on it and other things. And, um, again, trying to be as unrecognizable as Jellyby Opera as possible. And then... Um, Yao is in another scene as I believe he's a highway patrolman. Pretty sure. I've seen the movie and I'm really trying to remember what it was called. It, it might be an American in Texas. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah. Yeah, I'm hoping someday I can talk the director into completely re-editing that thing. Because the, the plot and the writing to me is much stronger than what came out in that film and the known master actor who played the worker who I think had been laid off or something at the oil plant and how screwed everybody was getting and stuff um, at what's supposed to be his retirement banquet and the banquet where me the mayor's welcoming this Japanese investor for the oil refinery and stuff that guy's monologue was the work of a master actor and really cut to the quick and hardly any of that is in. And I think maybe that's partly the fall of a common style that may even be pushed in film classes now. I don't know, because I see so many documentaries like this too where they'll kind of allude to something or show you a little bit of something but not enough to really establish it. Because they assume you already know. It's, and it's you definitely don't taught. No. And that, I think, is a totally wrong way to make movies. I mean, compare the two versions of All the King's Men. You know Broderick Crawford's character and what those people are up to and what they're doing in the original All the King's Men, which, of course, was actually about a fictionalized version of that Louisiana governor, Huey Long. And um, the later one, 
with Sean Penn, you know, who's one of the greatest actors of our generation, as well as, you know, one of my favorite artists of humanitarians and stuff, and a guy with a lot of guts. Um, that movie is edited and plotted like you already have seen the first movie. And, well, this happened, but now we're going to go into this instead and have these characters reflecting on the incident that you never even saw in the movie. And I, for that reason, I thought the original was vastly better. And, um, you know, I, I hate it when they, oh, yeah, this band was cool. These live shows were really great. It was great to see somebody do this. Then you get prick teeth with 10 seconds of this great band playing live, and poof, back to commentary. Sometimes from people who weren't even in the band or something, just, you know, critics or punditoids or whatever. That stuff drives me nuts. I'm going back and forth right now with a guy who's shooting. I can't remember what the name's going to be. It's going to be the definitive documentary of surf instrumentals and that whole scene, pre-Beatles and stuff with Dick Dale and the Bel Airs and uh, a bunch of the other ones and stuff and interviewing the people who are in those bands who are still alive. And a few people like me who collected the records and how it inspired 80s people and beyond. And he said he's hardly going to have any live footage. I was like, oh my God, why? But you have it, right? <laughs> People would love to see these bands actually play and stuff. Just drives me crazy. It was a Hawkwind documentary I saw. My second favorite album of all time, this Funhouse by the Stooges, the Space Ritual, that insane Hawkwind live album that came out, in, I think, in 73. And... um you know, it was just mayhem. I'd say there were light shows. There was a mesmerizing nude woman dancer. Nick Turner, the sax player, played wearing a lizard suit. And anything went. And uh, two different homemade electronics guys just shooting stuff all over the place. And sonically, it's just like nothing else. And, um, you know, huge inspiration. I mean, no holiday in Cambodia without Hawkwind. Let's put it that way. Space Rock is, that's the, the quintessential album. And lo and behold, they're talking about Hawkwind, and then they cut to like five seconds or less of something live that is obviously from the space ritual era. And unlike the photographs on the album cover, because it was darker on stage, you can see what's going on and just how intense this band was. Poof, gone. Like, I hope that whole thing comes out somewhere, somehow, someday, for crying out loud. And Turner Classic Movies, by coincidence, last night, broadcast the Woodstock movie which to me is still the best live music documentary ever made. You know, not just because of how important it was and, you know, to see the stuff around the festival where all hell breaks loose, but everybody's cooperating. And even the people who are really redneck looking in the little towns are being nice to people. And how can we help? Do you need anything? Whatever. People aren't like that now. And it's not just Trump. This goes back to Reagan and all the neo-Nixons and all that good stuff. I mean, you know, the, but that's just part of them is the actual performances 
And luckily, this director, what was it, Michael Wadling or something like that, he lets the bands play. You almost always see the entire song. I mean, the downside is the near 10-minute song by 10 years after, or of three different cameras, only had Alvin Lee's head singing, and that was about all they had, and that was not the high point of the movie. But they don't interrupt Jimi Hendrix. They don't interrupt this insanely great, you know, clump of songs by Sly and the Family Stone. When I saw that movie when I was like 12, 13, maybe a little younger, it rekindled that Walter Mitty desire in me all over again. The Who in there and uh, Complete Songs and um, Sly in particular and even Country Joe McDonald just laying it out why he hated the Vietnam War so much in lyrics that were way more blunt than you'd ever get from Bob Dylan or something. You know, those are the big things like, God, this is what I really want to be. But until punk happened, of course, there was no hope. But then all of a sudden, people were starting their own bands, their own labels. The music was more insane and more of my liking and more fierce than ever before. And the lyrics had my kind of thick humor and topical stuff in spades. It's like, God, it's not like I was born too late after all. I was born at the perfect time. But, but, the, but that, that's why. And the other cool thing about the Woodstock movie was sometimes they'd have split two or three screens or more going all at the same time. So you see different parts of a band. I mean, somebody knew enough to have a camera close up on the hands of the hand percussion players of Santana. And nobody knew who Santana was then, and they knew enough to do that. And it's stuff like that. And sometimes it's... You know, you'd see people spinny dipping in the lake on one side and people walking around in muddy clothes on the other side or something else. And just brilliant with that. I've hardly ever seen that done anywhere since. And then I find as the credits roll, you know, assistant to director and chief editor, Martin Scorsese. And Martin's vision behind that and his use of the split screen, it really should be used more because it was so brilliantly used in that film. And it's funny because I also did watch that last night on TCM. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's another one I just saw little bits and pieces of because I was recording it that preceded it. It was just called Festival. And it was Newport Folk Festival from a few years earlier. Have you, have you ever and seen the again, full film? I will. It's, I will. I just saw bits and pieces of it. It's a really fantastic. It really impressed me. I'm saying, my God, I'm so glad. Even if I didn't think I'd like the music that I'm recording this, because again, those same kind of fans, some are starting to grow their hair out too, and some are saying, you know, this is the real music, alluding that rock and roll and pop music is not. But whatever. Another thing that ties in with the Turn It Around movie made much more recently about Gilman Street and the history of East Bay punk, and by extension, San Francisco punk before it. Um, that's a great movie, by the way, if you haven't seen Turn It Around. It's it very well made. It's a great movie, and everybody should pick that up. 
Yeah, but the same thing that they talked a little too much about and turn around people doing stuff themselves. It's so important we did this themselves. And I know why it's so important because, you know, I'm not the only one where my band was the first project I ever attempted on my own. And there was a lot of difficult homework involved in that where some of my friends who dropped out of school because they didn't want to do their homework never got their shit together to that degree to keep pushing away and pushing away and then be so proud i made this and no coach yelled at me my parents didn't make me it wasn't a homework assignment i did this and it's fucking cool and you have that in the newport folk festival movie too which who was a no it wasn't pennebaker or somebody i hadn't heard of who actually directed it but um uh um, 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 a lot of the people they're interviewing, you know, even if nobody there brought their own acoustic guitar, they were getting bottles and hubcaps and whatever else. But if they knew the song, they'd all get together and start playing, sitting on somebody's bumper down on the ground with their tent pitched or whatever, and making music. I mean, that was one thing that folk music does have that not even punk has, like folk does. And punk is the closest thing since, is the sing-along factor. I mean, people still did a lot of sing-alongs at home, you know, because, you know, not everybody even had a radio in the 30s, let alone television in the 50s. You played and you sang songs at home. And some of those songs, I mean, I couldn't believe somebody was singing that, that melancholy go tell that roadie the old gray goose is dead. Like, oh, my God, that was one of the songs my mom used to sing that I couldn't <laughs> stand. And there they are. Somebody is singing it on stage at the Newport Festival. Like, yep, that is the sing-along connection. Imagine how bummed I was when I found out my mom had tossed out the Alan Lomax songbook that we had. Because mom played the piano and stuff. I never did. But, you know, that was the one that had, of course, sheet music stuff of all these old American songs that not only were... The people, you know, everybody from the Dillons to the Dave Van Ronks to the Phil Oakses and Joan Baez's and Peter, Paul, and Mary singing those songs. House of the Rising Sun was in that book, you know, with all these different lyrics and stuff. And I do that song. I know that song. But compared to that, I don't know that song because that's not the animal's original. It predates the animals by decades. And um, which is why... Eric Burden, now that he's complained that Trump is stealing the song and using it at his rallies, um, he doesn't have as strong a ground to legally stop him as Neil Young and some of the others because that's an old, old, old traditional folk song that um, is in the public domain. So uh, still has a claim because of the animal version Trump was using, but... Uh, Anyway, so that, that yeah, I'm definitely going to dig into that movie later and stuff and watch it in its entirety where I can handle another round of emotions and stuff as went through with Woodstock, not just, you know, where would I be if I didn't, wasn't so into this music and feel it this deep and then saw those bands on a great big screen again and stuff. And But it's also, you know, I was a very politically tuned in kid. I mean, I'm 62 now, so I was born in 58. Yes, I am that old, but I was such a news hound from early on. You know, I saw Oswald get shot live in the living room, Berlin Wall go up, and of course, 
the much less censored and sanitized news media showing bloody soldiers coming back from Vietnam and race riots and everything else, and instead of changing the channel, my parents would explain it all to me. So I had very strong views on these things at a very early age. Plus, I was so into rock and roll the minute I heard it in the fall of 65 and went straight for the harder stuff, the early Stones and even local garage bands back when radio played them and everything, um, that I felt the music along with the anti-war movement and everything else much deeper. I felt the music much deeper than I would have just hearing it on the radio or something. And um, so I'm very, very grateful that I had that kind of experience and, you know, that I was able to uh, not close my mind off because either parents or something else, you know, I was a weird enough unpopular kid. I didn't care what other people thought of me in these things. So I just let my interests go where they were going to go. And um, so it, it was it, it, a lot of stuff churning around when I saw those movies and my parents did listen to some folk music as well as classical. They had Joan Baez albums and Pete Seeger and some others. And then my dad had a Japanese kabuki music album to be all nice and intellectual and ethnic and study these things. And uh, I liked it when I was four years old. I found it as a teenage pothead. And I liked it even more. <laughs> And uh, it crept in. I mean, that whole course, California, Uber Alice, that's kabuki. Maybe not the exact notes, but how it was played and what I did with it. I got it, you know, it was inspired by my memories of the Azuma Kabuki musicians. And, uh, yeah, well, I'll give you one last one. Um, you know, people are, oh, what's your favorite movie? Well, have you have you heard what mine is? I haven't. What is yours? Do you have any guesses? You get to guess. I want to guess Network, Sidney Lumet's 1970 masterpiece, but I honestly don't know. Boy, what I haven't seen say. that in a while. That's a pretty good movie. What else? <laughs> uh, Sweet Smell of Success. Uh, I think you... That is a really good one. I guess you know I'm a real noir head, too. Yes, yes. I mean, that's at least in the top ten. Although I think the top two have to be Touch of Evil and DOA in no particular order. Those are the most of my faves of all of them. But, God, lots of good ones. Lots of good ones. And... um you know, I'm, I'm glad I live in San Francisco for that because Eddie Muller, who I knew long before he was on Turner Classic Movies, had his Noir City Film Festival every year right down the hill from my house. So, you know, I got to know him the first year, so I always make sure I get there and get in and all that good stuff. And he always showed stuff that nobody remembered existed or that he found. And a lot of times you never see it again because... Apparently, there's a lot more hoops you have to jump through to get the rights from these same studios and owners to show a film on television, mm -hmm. even once. So some of these ones that unfold in his noir alleys, he's been trying to get them somehow to show somewhere for years and years. 
And, you know, he's a very charming guy. He knows how he can sell refrigerators to the Eskimos in case you <laughs> haven't noticed, which is how he was able to talk those studios into letting him go back in their vaults and go look for reels of film that they denied existed. And then he started finding them. So then I was like, okay, you can go in. You, you and your buddies can go back there now. And some of them will even give money to the Film Noir Foundation, like Scorsese, I believe, does, so they can get some of these things saved and restored and all that good stuff. And the harrowing tales of how they've saved some of these films, including one I think they redid, and I'm not sure they've, it's gone to DVD or Blu-ray, but it was a Film Noir Rest Foundation restoration. I'd seen it before at Noir City years earlier, but in between time, that print that they showed had disintegrated partway. They had to somehow cobble together, put that film back together from other sources, and that was supposed to be the only print left. Stuff like that. I mean, the work that goes into some of those, as well as restoring other films and other genres, is just something to behold. Well, I started off by talking about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I want to say, fuck the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm going to start a campaign to get you on TCM. That is what we should all be striving for. I want to see Jello on the essentials. I, 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 I uh, ironically, um, Eddie tried to have a Noir City Film Festival in Denver, which, of course, I'm from Boulder outside of there, and my mom is getting on in years, and she's still really lucid and healthy for somebody who's 91, but, you know, I can only go back and see her so many more times. So, uh now, if you're okay, there's an excuse. I'll see my mom and support Eddie and try and drum up some local support to get Noir City off the ground in, uh, at the Alamo Draft House. And they did it at the southern suburb one in Littleton because that was the only one that had a reel-to-reel projector. Big mistake because if they'd done it, the one closer to downtown, they would have gotten more people. But anyway, um, and it was... Eddie with James Elroy and their good friends doing it together. And that was a circus. <laughs> I mean, James Elroy in real life is a lot more together than Hunter Thompson was, but you could never tell from when he was on stage. <laughs> and uh, so that, that was quite a, quite a hoot. And getting to see the lineup on the big screen again, that's always a treat. And, um, you know, hanging with Elroy a little bit, that was fun, too. But um, then the guy who was running the whole thing came up to me and said, well, do you want to host movies? And I'm like, sure, but I want it to be anything goes. And um, so uh, I think it was what Jellyby Offers Incredibly Strange Theater began, which was both uh, in tribute to the incredibly strange films and music books that my friend Vale put out, and then, um, uh, and, and, well, that was, that was a good name for it. And um, so I did double bills, and I don't know whether we're going to have any more. The attendance kind of went down a little bit, and then COVID hit, and the new guy running the Alamo, and they seemed to keep rotating, said he really wanted to do more regardless and wanted to do some different stuff to build it up. Because Alamo does not know how to promote an event aside from their own website and stuff like this. You got to promote it like it's a rock show and put posters up and stuff, whatever. Anyway, maybe even a whole schedule for the month and other areas besides your website. Get people to come. 
But anyway, um, so let's see. The first one I did was kind of had to do a combination. I came up with all these concept nights. And um, the first one I was going to do was, uh, you know, two of my big all-time favorites. Yes, my all-time favorite movie is, you want to take one more guess or not? Is it, well, are we just going DOA now? It's not Woodstock either, no. The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. Okay. That's, that's an interesting that choice. That's my favorite like that. movie ever made. And, you know, showing it again at the Alamo on the big screen, it never hit me till then. Why was this not one of the biggest LSD movie, midnight movie hits of the 60s and the 70s? That thing is so made for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's the only one Dr. Seuss ever worked on, and he learned from that, didn't collaborate with Hollywood again. But um, screenplay and obviously the set design, probably the costumes and undoubtedly the songs, all Dr. Seuss. And uh, for those who do, don't know this movie, it's this totally weird-ass Technicolor film that was made for children, but uh, so they thought, where there's this kid who's being hectored by this evil, demanding piano teacher, Dr. Terwilliker, who is masterfully played by Hans Conried, who I'm surprised didn't get much bigger roles after that, and is not remembered as one of the greatest character actors of all time and stuff. He is so amazing in this role. I've seen him in some other stuff, too, and he definitely had many different facets of things he could do. I guess he wound up doing a lot of radio and stage work, and he, too, was surprised that 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T didn't make him a much more in-demand character of a character actor. But anyway, you got to see Hans Conrad. He has to be seen to be believed. One of the great screen monsters, let's put it that way. But this poor kid is so overworked. Dr. Terwilliker leaves, and this mother who's been widowed by World War II is like, but you have to practice, practice, practice. He tries to practice, and he's so tired he passes out face first in the piano keys and has this weird dream where he is trapped in a concentration camp. This is not that long after World War II, but there's a concentration camp as conceived by Dr. Seuss with these high, weird, curvy walls, but there is an electric barbed wire fence on top. So that's where he is along with 500 other children who've all been abducted by Dr. Terwilliker so he can force them all to play this gigantic, swirly-looking piano all at the same time while he conducts them. And so the character, I think think his name is Bobby, he finds a plumber working on the sink there for the grand opening. It's the same plumber who'd been over a thousand. Oh, gee, Mr. Zabludowski, you have to save me now. And he's a little skeptical and stuff. And it's almost homoerotic between them, but I don't really want to go quite that far. (laughs) But, uh, and clearly this is the guy that the kid wants to have as a new father too can tell he just they you know they love each other and stuff but then he finds out but who does he see when he finds dr terwilliker's bedroom but his mother is having an affair with dr terwilliker 
and he has her hypnotized. And then the minute she starts to ask questions, he locks her up in his lock me tight and then hides the key behind a metronome and stuff. So you have to somehow try and reach in and get it. I think they eventually do. I'm not sure. But, uh, um, <laughs> and the songs and everything else. Uh, and her, Terwilliker dressing for the big day and layer after layer after layer of gaudy drum major stuff. So the thing had it so big it barely sits on his head. And he's finally ready to march down. And all these children, when they're inducted, have been forced to wear the official Terwilliker beanie, which is this little skull cap with a great big rubber hand on top. Oh, would I like to get one of those. But, uh... <laughs> And, of course, eventually the kid and the plumber find a way to foil Dr. Terwilliker, and he has a only Hans Conried could have this kind of a meltdown, meltdown, and all is well, and there's the, he's back home, there's the plumber and all this other good stuff, and they kind of, you know, they kind of look at him, oh, I'll see you later, Mr. Zabley, I'll see you too, blah, blah, blah. So you never know, then suddenly it's the Donna Reed show all over again, only in Technicolor, but um, the sets, the choreography, and you know, the different things, eventually he winds up in the dungeon for unwanted instruments that aren't the piano, and none of them are instruments anybody but Dr. Seuss had ever visualized. And that's just one part. So, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's a great, great movie. Like no other movie anyone ever made. And I was going to uh, co-bill it with The Party, my favorite Peter Sellers comedy. And then I finally brought it up, and then a discussion ensued with Alamo people, and then over to people I knew of East Indian descent and stuff. And it really bounced back and forth whether Seller's character is so insensitive and culturally misappropriated, you can't show that movie anymore. And that's still the ongoing discussion, you know, you know, the part of like, you know, you got to pull the Confederate statues down. I understand that one. They weren't even built after the Civil War. They were built in the 20s, a lot of them, during the revival of the Ku Klux Klan, sparked by D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation movie. Mm-hmm. And that's how much damage that dude did. The Tulsa riots that killed all those people, where they were even bombing black people from the air and stuff. Um, you know, that was, that was D.W. Griffith for you but um, went viral before there was that kind of virus. And uh, maybe a different coronavirus for the Spanish flu, I don't know. But anyway, um, so that's another example of, God, I would hate to see this movie get wiped off the map. I've never seen Gone with the Wind in my life. And now I'm thinking, God, maybe I should at least see it, even though it's going to turn my stomach and my father wouldn't let me see it as a child because he hated it so much because of you know what the message of the movie was and he told me that I'm like yeah I don't think I want to see this <laughs> and, uh, but uh, it probably ought to be seen anyway now before it completely gets obliterated I don't know well, it never will be but you know what I'm saying I mean already YouTube made us take down that we created Putin video because of a split second where Ivanka Trunk is cradling a large dildo in it. 
And so he put it back up again with a split second of black and now no more complaints, including the part where it's obvious Trump is sucking Putin's dick and stuff. That's still in. But, uh, you know, even several years ago, before it really got more home to a fine point, there are people like Chris Rock and other major comedians saying they no longer book themselves into colleges because of there were more and more restrictions and people wanted to see every single thing they were going to say in advance. Oh, you've got to take that out because it's going to offend this. The person's got to take that out because it's going to offend those people, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, granted, what Chris, Rock, Chris Rock's Christopher Reeve joke sure as fucking hell offend me, but um, I hate to see it come to this and mm-hmm. stuff. I really hate to see it come to this. And, um, you know, even much earlier, when I've been more sensitive about this for years, I mean, people came up to me at two different spoken word shows telling me how ethnically insensitive I was because I made fun of Kim Jong-il's name. You know, if I had a name like that, I'd have nuclear issues, too. Well, now can I actually say about Kim Jong-un, man, if I was a cross between Pol Pot and Gary Coleman, I'd have nuclear size issues, too. <laughs> can I say that anymore or not? I mean, every once in a while, I like to shoot that halo that some people put over my head that doesn't belong on there. Shoot it off and stuff. I mean, after that, after that shuttle disintegrated on reentry to Earth, I think it was the Columbia. You know, I, I made I made a I made a joke in the middle of everything. It was horror shows about astronaut fajitas served on hot tiles all over Texas, and the crowd would just stop for a minute. Uh, and I was like, "Yeah, it stays in for that very reason." <laughs> but uh, I, I mean, and, and speaking of making people submit all their work in advance, I mean. The people it really hurt was the lesser-known, below-ground comedians who made their living going from campus to campus at colleges performing during lunchtime in the quad or the cafeteria or whatever, and suddenly they were getting all this stuff done to them, and some of them didn't have any comedy left and didn't know what they were going to do because it was the only way they had to make a living. And the only times I'd run into that was years earlier, I was booked in spoken word at universities. Texas and Austin, you know, hook them longhorns and all that. And somebody, official at school, demanded to see a transcript of everything I was going to say when I came there. And I refused on the grounds of academic freedom and freedom of speech, not to mention that there was only a little bit after that that almost everything I did came off a bullet point through memory, and I never wrote anything down. So, you know, I, I really felt offended by that. And I said, you, you want that, you either lift that or I'm canceling. And they didn't cancel me. And then another time I was on a discussion panel at the CNJ Convention College Music Journal in New York City. And it was right around the time Clinton had just turned all our stomachs picking Al Gore for vice president and all which that uh, journalist Adolph Reed Jr. promptly named them the Confederate Twins. (laughs) But anyway, um, so that meant Tipper Gore was going to be vice first lady and would have Hillary's ear to see if she could launch an anti-music campaign. We were not happy. And so I put out a statement ahead of time of all the reasons I wasn't going to vote for Bill Clinton. 
and that was only one of them because I knew his record as governor, too. Worst on the environment and worst on labor and education of any sitting governor of either party at the time. And he was governor of frickin' Arkansas. So uh, I, my conscience is clear. I never voted for him. I never voted for Obama. I'm not going to vote for Biden now. Luckily, I don't live in a swing state, so I can do that. But uh, anyway, for another, what do we do about these music lyrics, freedom of speech or not, Tipper Gore or not, discussion panel was hatched. <laughs> and with a lot of those discussion panels there, I insisted that somebody from the religious right actually be on the panel. Because otherwise, when I talk about how nuts those people are and what their beliefs stem from, nobody believes me. You know, music hipsters don't think anybody wants to strip mine the country or chop down all the trees because otherwise we're wasting what God gave us before Jesus is going to put it back again. You know, people don't believe that. And so on that panel, they had a guy who's still wreaking havoc by the name of Brent Bozell, same name as his father, who was some of the early pioneers of physically violent attacks on abortion clinics and doctors. Brent Bozell, they have him there. And he talks about some of these lyrics, and as a Catholic, this offends me. And uh, I don't think I quite hit the nail on the head telling him, look, all those molesting, all, all those priests molesting kids, not to mention pushing, you know, being totally anti-birth control and reproductive rights, resulting all these unwanted children, even in third world countries where nobody can feed themselves, thus wars are started. You know, there's parts of Catholicism that offend me. So maybe we should ban you, right? Well, didn't quite turn into that, but that was a lesson that guy would be so pompous that he thought everybody should first think about the lyrics and their raps or their songs or whatever. Oh, I better not put that in there. It might offend a Catholic. That's wrong. And so now, when it isn't the extremists from the right, like Brent Bozell saying that, but people from the other side saying, we have to see everything you're going to say in advance if you speak at our school because we're worried it might trigger this or it might offend that or whatever. That's no different from Brent Bozell. That's no different from the House on american Activities Committee. I don't know quite how I'm going to tackle that in song yet, but there's got to be a way. I mean, especially it's a tightrope because some of the people who want more so-called safe spaces, I mean, I think it's going too far to say all campuses should be a space, safe space for everybody who feels unsafe for any reason, which is not doing your job to prepare your students for the week for the real workaday world, which is just filled to the brim with assholes. And you're going to have to learn how to deal with them because that's real life. So there's that argument. But at the same time, somebody who has been raped or assaulted or been the subject of serious goddamn racism and stuff is, you know, they have a point. But how do you balance it? I don't know yet. It's one of those push-pull, tug-of-war things that's always going to be happening and going in different ways with different generations. In some cases, like now, a current generation trying to out-radical all the other ones. 
for better and sometimes for worse. Well, I'm always excited to see where the world takes your music, and I'm very excited for this new album. And I, I'm, I'm just honored that you came on the show tonight. I just want to thank you, Jello. It, it means a lot to me. Thank you so much. Well, here's the epilogue. I didn't show the party at the end, even though several East Indians, friends of mine, who I polled said, I used to love that movie when I was a kid, but I don't think you should show it now. <laughs> What's their reaction? So instead, I originally was going to have another double bill Roots of the Tea Party. But because, <laughs> and then they had to postpone it until after the 2018 election. I thought, okay, we'll do this anyway. We'll have 5,000 fingers of Dr. T, and then we're going to follow it with 2,000 maniacs. Fantastic. You know, the Herschel Gordon yep. Lewis pioneering splatter classic. As soon as I began hearing about the so-called Tea Party, who were even calling themselves tea baggers at the time and stapling tea bags to hats they wore, when all I could think of about them was the cover of a certain Dwarves album. <laughs> but, uh, but eventually somebody else got through. You know, you got to call yourself more like Boston Tea Party, Tea Party, and whatnot. We're into Texas, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, so... Uh, you know, and those guys are so stupid. That's why I call the new album Tea Party Revenge Porn. And the title track also has a video, which we haven't dropped yet. But uh, wait for that one if you like the Putin one. As much as I like them all, I think the Putin one is the lesser of all of them and stuff. So check out the other two on the Alternative Tentacles YouTube channel, among other places. But anyway, so... As soon as this Tea Party stuff started, I immediately thought of 2,000 Maniacs. You're just, you're just in time for our jamboree. We're going to drop a big rock on one of you, chop the arm off of another one, and we're going to put this dude inside a barrel filled with nails and roll him down a hill. <laughs> and and they all are very, very cartoonishly good old boy and stuff. Stuff, I think, of the Tea Party. And, of course, in the movie, it turns out this town that wasn't on the map that this couple carloads of young wild tourists had pulled into, and only one carload escapes at the end, and then the town evaporates into thin air, and all they see instead, or they don't see it, but the camera focuses on a plaque saying in 1863 or 4, an entire town was wiped out here by Union soldiers and men, women, and children were all killed. So it's their ghosts of the Confederacy coming back and killing Yankees on Jamboree Day. If that ain't the Tea Party in a nutshell, I don't know what is. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the second bill was like a tribute to Mamie Van Doren with uh, High School Confidential and one of my favorite unknown noirs called, you know, who needs a visual title? You just call it Guns, Girls, and Gangsters. I think that's one of her best performances, if not the best. And the two songs she sings in that that are not on the Rhino album are her two best, I think. So uh, that's a great one, Guns, Girls, and Gangsters. I think Kino or somebody put something out now of a triple bill of Mandora Noir. The other two are pretty boring, but that one's on there. So that was the next one. And then at one point I did documentaries, and we couldn't get the Wax Tracks one. But we got Turn It Around and... Uh, 
Bathtubs Over Broadway. Again, a movie everyone should see. It's, have you, not, you haven't seen that one, huh? I have seen that one, yes. Yeah, yeah, we've, we're lucky. We've been treated to three really good music documentaries, all back-to-back-to-back, to back to back, all well-made, all include the electricity and energy of the times, and you actually feel it. And Bathtubs Over Broadway is about a little-known music convention, music genre of corporate sales conventions where the executives or the salesmen would all be there without their wives. And, uh, you know, they'd hire a composer and a performance troupe to perform an entire musical about how great the corporation is. Usually performed once or maybe twice and never again. And some of those songs like the Exxon dealer's wife and the big bottling plant in the sky about Coca-Cola where there's no EPA <laughs> and there's no OHSA and everyone has to drink Coke all day. Yes, these records must be heard to be believed. And the guy who collected more than anybody else was Steve Young, who was a gag writer for David Letterman. And was a, it was his records that Dave would show for Dave's record collection. Well, and it's so funny so that he just finally, used to go to, like, bins and find these crazy little albums. It's so funny. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's a really good one. And the most amazing part to me in it, even more than all the giant spark plugs marching down a street, presumably in Flint or somewhere, in a parade about how great a corporation is, the footage they dug up, including actual video footage of the American Standard Toilet Company convention, one of my favorites of those records where a woman sings, My bathroom, my bathroom <laughs> is a special kind of place. And Steve found her. She's in the movie. And, uh, you know, video footage of that has got all kinds of things in there you wouldn't believe. So uh, I think that one's on Netflix. You can actually watch Bathtubs over Broadway. Yes, it is. So uh, hopefully some of my other Canadian stuff that brought me to the attention of Bruce McDonald, like Terminal City Ricochet and... Uh, the Widower, which came a little later, will someday turn up on Netflix somehow, especially because we have the DVD and Blu-ray rights and hardly anybody buys them. So they're both pretty good. So uh, anyway, I think that is enough for now, then. You're in Calgary, right? Yes, I am. Yeah, I haven't been there in a long time. I know. We would love to have you back. <laughs> well, I... Well, you know, I'd zip in, do the show, go to Record Land, and then go into the go into the Rockies and go to the parks. Yeah, I love those. I love them parks. <laughs> I mean, Yosemite and those parks, and then uh, down around um, oh, the Glaciar de la Parida Moreno, and then uh, um, Torres del Paine on the Chilean side. The some of the some of the Andes and the big glaciers in Patagonia, those are beautiful places I've ever seen. Yeah, another thing to put in those videos you like, they were all put together by a woman in British Columbia named Annie Kidd. And we've released some of her music on AT over the years. Good friend and whatnot. And then out of the blue, she's moved way up into the north woods near Prince George and whatnot and, you know, cooped up COVID and starts coming up with these songs that were way more political than a lot of the, her earlier lyrical direction, there were these great collage videos that went with them. And I thought, okay, Annie, 
it's time. Can you make me one of these pretty please with a fly on top? And it was like, <laughs> I thought you'd never ask. And so finally, after all these years, I find my video version of Winston Smith, the visual artist I've worked so well with over the years. And God, we trust cover and the, and the uh, DK logo, the albums I did with DOA, No Means No, and Winston Art, and White People and the Damage Done is Winston, several of spoken words, etc. So I just never found a video person like that. Thus, there's never been official video clips for any of my music. But then finally, I could get away with it in the free-for-all of the digital age today, video collage, and I'm not even in the video. That's the best part. You know, you don't have to hire a camera crew and lip sync your song, which I always just thought was dumb. You know, I grew up on watching things like the Woodstock movie and In Concert and Don Kirshner. I like watching live. People play music live, not lip syncing. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so now you get these kick-ass collages and stuff that kind of hone what I'm already trying to say to a fine point. So, uh who knows? She gets inspired and get her computer fixed. You may see some more, but uh, yeah, she 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 has spent more time trying to slowly worm her way into the film world than she has with music. She made a short that I'm in called "I Love You, I Am the Porn Queen," and then um, she was I think she was the main AD on a movie that just got a general release called "The Silent Natural." That. Uh, it's basically about a 19th century deaf Major League Baseball player. And then, uh, oh, well, I mean, she's been trying to get a TV series off the ground about a weird squat punk venue with other weird things going on called the Goat Cave for years. And, uh, you know, everybody from me to Josh from Queens of Stone Age and Ice-T and others all kind of signed little commitments to it, but it still hasn't gotten done. And... Uh, She's done videos for bands and stuff, too. But definitely like the collage work. It just kind of blew my mind. I'm like, oh, my God, she understands just how weird my sense of humor is better than I ever thought she did. Because <laughs> it's not just strict, dark political stuff. There's other things in there, too, sometimes occasionally, that make absolutely no sense except in certain people's surreal minds, the kind of people who like 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. Anywho, okay, I guess we got a roll here. I got to go. So uh, thank you. And thank you again, Jello. Thank you for listening. Make sure to keep up with everything Jello over at alternativetentacles.com. We got a new album coming out, hopefully before the election, so make sure you keep an eye on that. And if you haven't heard any of the old Dead Kennedy stuff, those original albums with Jello, some of the most important music ever made. This concludes our broadcast day.